Welcome to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In this episode, Greg and I provide a thorough report on the recent Stronger by Science trip to Iceland. After feats of strength, Greg and I discuss a recent paper that has caused some controversy related to the consumption of red meat and processed meat. After that, we have a practical discussion on how and why to implement deloads in your training. And finally, Greg and I interview Dr. Michael Ray, who tells us all about pain science, specifically in the context of lifting weights. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I'm joined by a special temporary co-host named Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming along. Okay, so uh, if you tried to message Greg or I on social media in early October... There's a chance we missed it because we took a big family Stronger by Science trip to Iceland. Um, Very cool strength pilgrimage for everybody listening. If you want to go pick up heavy stones on a beach or potentially run into the strongest man in the world, uh, Iceland would be the place to do it. So, uh, Greg, did you enjoy our time on the trip? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was sick. Very cool place. Windy. Very windy. Extremely dangerously windy, but uh, beautiful country, nice people windy to a point that shocked me i had read a lot about iceland apparently no one talks about how fucking windy it is (laughs) but it was it was incredibly windy and with the intro out of the way where we literally just talk about the weather uh (laughs) i would say this episode is off to a smashing start yeah so strong people rocks you can lift glaciers and wind uh iceland cool trip you should go there now, I did mention we ran into the world's strongest man. I can think of no better segue than going to the feats of strength segment. Hell yeah. So uh, uh, the World Weightlifting Championships were pretty recent, about two weeks ago at the time of recording this. Um, a few listeners messaged me upset that I didn't talk about any of the performances there in our last feats of strength segment. Uh, so I will get on it now. So probably the headlining feat of strength from the recent World Weightlifting Championships is uh, Lasha Talakadze uh, went 220-264-484 for the biggest weightlifting total of all time. Generally, I convert to pounds, but this is weightlifting, and so it stays in kilos because that's how weightlifting is done. And so his total of 484 is the current world record. And if you know about weightlifting, they redo their weight classes from time to time, mostly just to wipe their record books uh, as testing improves. <laughs> and so uh, recently there, there was a pretty big shift in drug testing. It got considerably better around 2014, 2015. Um, a lot of people from... The 2008 and 2012 Olympics were popped on retests. I I recently saw, this is a little bit off topic, uh, but I saw an article looking at um, the 94 kilo session at the 2012 Olympics. And I think two more people in that session got popped on retests recently. So I'm pretty sure the way it currently stands is like, I think the, the person who initially placed sixth currently has the gold medal in that class. Uh, and the person who placed like 
11th now has bronze. It, it was something ridiculous like that. Like, basically everyone got popped. Anyway, so drug testing recently got a lot better, and so weightlifting redid their weight classes. Um, and so, like, there's there were a ton of world records set at the World Weightlifting Championships, but if you go and check those world records against, like, the prior world records at similar weight classes... Um, you know, for the most part, they're not quite back to where they were before, but, uh, Lasha's 484 is not just better than the prior world record, but the old weight classes, which was also Lasha at 478, uh, but it's the biggest weightlifting total of all time. Um, the, the previous biggest before Lasha was, was, uh, 475 by, uh, uh, Taryn Yanko back in the 80s, uh, 1988. Uh, and and people were kind of thinking that that may be a number that would never fall. Uh, again, mainly due to drug testing, like weightlifting is still a pretty dirty sport, but they do at least have to be clean on the platform um, <laughs> and not have drugs in their system that will, you know, get popped for in-meat testing. Uh, you know, back in the 80s, there wasn't really any drug testing whatsoever to speak of and so people were like ah whatever like and if you look at other weight classes as well a lot of times the biggest number that has ever been hit was hit in the 80s uh and then after they restructured the weight classes you know new great lifters rose up but like the 80s were kind of seen as the golden age um but yeah 484 total biggest of all time biggest even counting like the golden age of the 80s and Taryn Yanko's record that a lot of people thought may never fall. Um, so again, absolutely incredible performance. I think his clean and jerk was like nine kilos off of his best. So if he shows up at the Olympics pissed off, he could he could conceivably total 500 kilos, something like 225, 275, uh, 600 or 500, I mean. And that would just be ridiculous. Anyway, Lasha, very strong guy. Number two, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name. I apologize in advance. But Andrei Saponzikov, uh, Russian lifter, um, benched 606 at 198, which is 275 kilos at 90 kilos. Uh, that was at a big meet in Russia about three weeks ago, give or take. Uh, and I just missed it as I was doing my sweep for feats of strength. And so that's obviously a ridiculous number. If you go and watch the video, it looks like he still has a reasonable amount of room left in the tank as well, um, which is ridiculous. And, and I haven't seen enough of his maxes to know if that's just what a max looks like for him. But it's not... He's not the type of lifter where it looks like it would be a max. So for a lot of times people who are super explosive benchers and especially big benchers who lift with a relatively close grip uh, will have the bench style where it flies up or it just doesn't go at all. That's not the style of bench press he does. So I do think he did probably have some left in the tank on that world record as well, which was awesome. Um, and, and just to put that in context, it's a 600 plus bench at 198, only 136 people ever have bench pressed 600 plus, uh, the next closest person to him in his weight class only benches 562. So he has about a 40 pound lead on everyone else. 
Um, and so, you know, he benches 600 plus at 198. Only three people have ever gone 600 plus at 220. Uh, the record is 617, so he's only 5 kilos or about 11 pounds off the 220 record at 198, which is ridiculous. Um, and then only 11 people have ever benched 600 at 242. Everyone else who's benched 600 plus is 275 or above. So of 136 people, which is a reasonably small group in the first place, only 15 of them are below 275 pounds. And this dude's out here benching 600 plus at 198. It's like 22 pounds lighter than the next lightest 600 pound bencher. Super strong, super impressive. Uh, and then to round out the feats of strength for this week, uh, two recent feats of strength from, I, I, I would say people close to my heart as a lifter, um, people who were dominant lifters, uh, several years ago, as I was coming up in the sport, who I think may get overlooked these days. So the first is Dan Green. Back in, I would say, 2012, 2013, Dan Green was probably the biggest and most famous powerlifter in the world. Uh, he was the world record holder in the 220 and 242 classes. Super, super strong guy, right as, right as like untested raw lifting was really coming into its own. He's since dealt with some injuries. Um, few lifters have have risen up who have surpassed him. Yuri Belkin definitely being the most notable. Um, but just based on his training footage, it looks like he may be getting back into form and ready to put some some sick lifts on the platform. Most notably, uh, he recently deadlifted seven ninety three for five. Uh, and that was without straps. And if memory serves, he has had some grip issues on deadlift in the past. The most he's ever pulled in a competition is 827. So pulling 793 for five, one, is ridiculous no matter who you are. Two, is an all-time PR for him. Uh, I imagine as strong as he is, all-time PRs are, are not easy to come by. And three, I mean... It looks, it looks like his deadlift is way better than it's ever been, and if he doesn't meet sometime soon, he, you know, I don't know if he would improve his total, but he definitely looks like he's ready to pull somewhere in the neighborhood of 900. Um, super impressive, super strong. And then also from the World Weightlifting Championships recently, uh, Lu Salchun uh, totaled, he, he went 171, 207, 378 in the 81 kilo class. Uh, so again, that's a case where the current, so the 378 was a world record in the 81 kilo class. This is a case where the current record isn't quite as good as the old record was. So Lou had the prior record in the 77 kilo weight class at 380. So obviously three, 380 at 77 is better than 378 at 81, but still like pretty similar. And the reason this is so impressive is uh, Lou won his weight class. He won the world championship. It was his fifth, I believe. Uh, but the thing is, Lou's 35 years old. Um, <laughs> I looked up the ages of the other male winners at, at the world weightlifting championships this year. The next oldest weight class winner was 27. So he was eight years older than the next person 
to win their weight class. Uh, in order to do so, he beat his countryman, uh, Lee Dain, uh, who was the prior world record holder in this weight class at 375 kilos at 81. Um, and and so, like, I, I feel like this was probably Lou's swan song. Um, he, I mean, he's been at or near the top of that class forever. Uh, the 2008 Olympics, if memory serves, was his big international coming out party. Um, and he probably isn't going to represent China at this weight class in the upcoming Olympics, just because like, I'm not going to bore you guys with how qualifying for, for the Olympics and weightlifting works, but basically it's like a cumulative thing. It's not just who has the best total in the weight class. And so Lee has like a better body of work up to this point during this Olympiad than Lou does. So Lou's probably not going to make the Olympic team. Uh, at 35, he is considerably over the hill by weightlifting standards. Doubt he wins another big international meet, at least of this caliber. But I mean, this was, this is probably how he's going to go out. And boy, is he going out on top. Uh, he was, he, he would, I would say he and Klokov were like the most famous lifters in the world 10 years ago. Uh, Klokov has been out of the sport forever. Lou is still winning championships at 35 years old. Super, super impressive. Good for him. Like, I love to see it. I'm still a fan of his, uh, especially because he's been dealing with a lot of injuries in recent years. So pe people were thinking that he was done just period like two years ago. Extensive injury history, already 33 years old. People didn't think he was really going to get back into form again, especially with you know, other good lifters rising up in that class. Um, but yeah, he he pulled another world championship out of his ass, obviously in pain, but you just love to see it. You love to see it indeed. Okay, now we've got a research review segment. And over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of buzz on the internet pertaining to a recent nutrition paper. Um the paper was essentially looking at the health risks associated with red meat and processed meat. And at the surface level, it appeared to give some contradictory um, recommendations compared to what you often hear in the nutrition literature. So the paper was called Unprocessed Red Meat and Processed Meat Consumption, Dietary Guideline Recommendations from the Nutrition Recommendations Consortium. Uh, this was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and the lead author was Bradley Johnston. So this paper came out, and if you were to summarize the findings in a sentence um, without a lot of nuance, basically they said, you know, your red meat consumption, your processed meat consumption, go ahead and just continue doing whatever you're doing. And that got a lot of people fairly agitated. What was interesting, this is one of those journals that you see more often uh, nowadays. Journals are, to some extent, expanding what they do in the online space. And so there are some journals where you can actually access the reviewer comments from each stage of the review, uh, which is always fun to do. <laughs> um, in this case, the journal had like basically an online comment comments section. Uh, but it, it was you know, one step above like the really ridiculous comments you see on any typical website, like the people that leave comments, 
they're in this journal reading. So it, it's usually people with some kind of academic or public health background. Theoretically. Theoretically. Uh, but in any case, so there were some really wild comments in the comment section by this, uh, for, for this article. So, um, you know, you're thinking this is the annals of internal medicine. It, it's a, a kind of physician oriented medical journal, right? This is physiology. It's medicine. And some of the comments were wild. So like one of them was uh, by deciding not to consider environmental impacts of red meat consumption, um, this group has produced a flawed report that is both an abdication of the moral responsibility that is an abdication of the moral responsibility that physicians have to society. So that was like, I was like, eh, I, I don't necessarily disagree with the idea of considering environmental aspects to some extent in this conversation, but we're talking about a medical journal here. I do not want them practicing like armchair environmental policy. Yeah, and, and I mean, the the purpose of the study wasn't, you know, in abs or like taking literally everything into account. What is the diet that every person on the planet sh should switch to for health, but also for environmental and sociopolitical and economic reasons and everything else like that? That was that wasn't the point of it. It was just like health. That's it. Right. Yeah. This is not the place to go like on a deep dive of the ethics related to consumption of meat or the environmental impact. I mean, we're in a medical journal, you know, another comment. Uh, again, physicians need to realize that climate deterioration poses the most immediate and grave risk to people's health. Um, so it was another like long comment that was getting into like, let's make this whole thing about the environment, which again, environment, pretty important, but we're in a medical journal. So it seemed a little bit out of place. Um, and then the third one, this one was interesting. It said, even if conflicts are fully disclosed, not having vegetarian or vegan panelists raises serious concerns of inadequate viewpoint diversity, leading to unintentional distortion of the facts. The process of reaching consensus may have progressed very differently if the panel had balanced and diverse uh, viewpoints from meat eaters, flexitarians, vegetarians, and whole food plant-based vegans. So this was not a not a criticism of the actual methodology necessarily, but really just a, a request to have more vegans in the mix so that they could express their opinion. Yeah, I mean, which doesn't make much scientific sense to me. Because, like, so if the argument is, you know, these people may have had some level of bias and you know, maybe didn't consider some research or maybe had issues with how they interpreted some research. That's that's a perfectly reasonable thing to put forth. But typically in a scientific discussion, what you would then do is say, well, it sure is curious that they didn't consider this paper and this paper and this paper, which seem to, you know, contradict their bias. Maybe that, you know, th there there is some clear evidence of bias here based on, you know, how they actually conducted their analyses and the conclusions they drew from the evidence. You can't just say, you can't just hand wave it, you know? Yeah. You, you can't just say like, you know, I'm not actually going to do the work to see if their bias influenced what they had to say. I'm just going to like vaguely allude to the fact that it probably did and hope people don't think too hard about it. 
Yeah. So the the argument would be like, hey, here are some instances of bias, not just like, I bet you would have read those same exact results differently if you were a vegan. Right. Because that's yeah. not a particularly scientific uh, basis of argumentation. Now, um, I will be fair. They did something, they, they use something called the GRADE approach. And GRADE is an acronym. It's uh, the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. And so this is a method um, that is basically developed for making, it, it's basically just for this type of thing, where you get a group of people together, you evaluate the evidence, you try to translate that into recommendations. Um, and what it's supposed to do is have some kind of additional acknowledgement of how patients in the population will value things and, and what kind of preferences they have. Um, it also puts a pretty heavy influence on what are the biases of the people doing the evaluation, both financial and intellectual biases or conflicts. So it's not like those comments are 100% totally out of left field. But if you're talking about like sliding into the comment section of a policy paper that inv involves five original systematic reviews, you would want to have a more data-driven response to that rather than say like, well, could have been differently if people just felt differently about the data they produced, you know? So th there have been some good, uh, some good kind of open letters that people have written where they have raised, you know, different considerations of like, oh, these criteria for this systematic review were too strict. You should have included that paper. You should have included this in your, your analysis. So there have been some good data-driven or, or data based uh what's what i'm thinking of criticism criticism yeah. yeah there have been some of those but what was really striking was that the uh the comment section kind of went <laughs> totally off the rails in at least like half of the comments so this is a paper that has generated a ton of discussion some of it very evidence-based some of it not quite as evidence-based uh, but in any case what they did here they got a group of people together they did five systematic reviews, and then they tried to, after those five systematic reviews, get together and kind of take a vote on what this evidence tells them and translate that into recommendations. So, um, like I said, they use this grade approach, and a big part of the grade approach is that there's a, a quality of ev evidence kind of scoring system that goes from high to very low. And what you'll see kind of all throughout the paper, even if you just read the abstract, I'm pretty sure it's in there as well. But they talk about having low or very low uh, quality evidence. And the grade system, from what I understand, I've never used it, obviously, but it seems like it automatically favors randomized controlled trials uh, in terms of the quality of evidence and tends to penalize observational evidence. And that, that's a pretty important thing because a lot of this research uh, where, where we've gotten our typical recommendations about limiting red meat and limiting uh, processed meat consumption, a lot of that stuff comes from observational studies. So when a huge body of the evidence is that type of research and you use this type of scoring system, a lot of people who are critical of this paper kind of came and said, well, you kind of knew before you started that most of this evidence was not going to carry a lot of weight based on the scoring system. So that's a pretty interesting debate to have because, um, you know, in most fields of, uh, of health-related science, we do automatically accept the randomized controlled trial as, as essentially the gold standard of, you know, 
evidence from which we try to make inferences about causation. Nutritional science really tends to stand alone as, as a field of science where most of our recommendations, especially when you look at like government panels that put together the, the big PDF reports every five years, a lot of it does seem to be very heavily based on observational data. Well, I mean, it, it kind of has to be, right? To some extent. Yeah, because um, yeah. I mean, you, you can run a... With nutritional science, you basically have three options. You can either run a really, really tightly controlled RCT for like two weeks because it then becomes like super burdensome and incredibly expensive to do much more than that, especially like if it's inpatient in a metabolic ward. You can do, you know, like a slightly less controlled randomized control trial or like a considerably less controlled one for a few months where you, you know, assign people a particular diet, maybe give them some counseling and have a way to check in to try to make sure adherence is decent. But, you know, it's free living and you don't know how good adherence is going to be. Those can run for a few months. And then, you know, if you're interested in health outcomes over like, you know, 20 years, if people are eating a particular diet, like that's that's got to be observational research. So like, I mean, on, on one hand, on one hand, that evidence is going to be inherently less reliable. Like y- you can't necessarily extrapolate the results of a two week long, super tightly controlled RCT to health outcomes over 20 or 30 years. But you can't you, you also are going to have a really hard time ascribing causation to observational research even if it's over the long term with a lot of subjects just because like you can't do that with that kind of study so it 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 is definitely difficult i mean Mm -hmm. in yeah the the question then becomes like the rcts are theoretically higher quality evidence um but then in terms of the outcomes you're interested in you can run like a two-week highly controlled rct to look at you know, changes in like a particular biomarker with some sort of change in diet. But you can't actually study the effects of those diets on heart attacks because there's yeah. not going to be that many people that have heart attacks in your metabolic ward in the next two weeks. I hope you know. Not. Yeah, one, one, <laughs> one would hope. One would hope. So it, yeah. it's inherently going to be looking at proxy measures, which then also makes the, the RCTs themselves you know, good for the actual thing they're assessing, but since what they're assessing is proxies for the outcomes we probably care about, it's it's hard to know how much stock to put in them as well. Yeah, and so this conversation is basically a microcosm of the challenges of nutritional science. We want to know the answers to things that, if we measure the thing directly, our methods tend to suffer in terms of their reliability and rigor. Um. The, the only other option is to start controlling things in a way that we can't actually measure what we want to measure. And so this is why when a big paper like this comes out, you'll have, you know, the camp of people saying, oh, we need to start, you know, reevaluating how much weight to put into this observational study or that observational study. And then the people come and say, what, these are the only studies actually looking at that outcome. And so th- this debate is going to rage on forever and ever and ever. Uh, but basically what they, if you look at the purpose statement of what the authors were trying to do here, uh, the way that they present it is right now, the guidelines suggest limiting 
your consumption of red meat and processed meat. But these recommendations are based on observational studies that have a high risk for confounding. Um, so they have a limited ability to establish causation. Um, and they tend not to report the absolute magnitude of the effects that, that they're observing. And so th they also noted that a, a lot of the organizations that produce those guidelines, they don't do it systematically in terms of their review process. Uh, and they often fail to address conflicts of interest particularly well. Um, and so, and, and they also fail to uh, account for the values and preferences of the population. So that, that's kind of the framework they laid out for explaining why they used this grade system, did these systematic reviews, tallied it all up, and then moved forward with some recommendations. Okay, now the methods, um, it's kind of funny, because uh, I did see some of the early commentary online was like trying to dig up conflicts of interest for these people that like weren't reported or something. There's actually a massive table in the paper purely dedicated to conflicts of interest. It includes both financial and uh, intellectual conflicts. And so what's really funny is in their conflicts of interest table, they <laughs> they estimated how much red meat they eat <laughs> over a given span of time. So um, I did see one person saying like, oh, this person didn't report this conflict, but it it was because they specified like within the last three years. And there was like a conflict from like four years ago or something like that. But generally speaking, I, th I think they try to keep it above board in terms of conflicts of interest because that was one of the things that they wanted to uh, to really highlight with their approach. I mean, and just as a note, I really, really like the idea of disclosing intellectual conflicts of interest just because like, dude, I, I'm not going to name names and start drama, but I'm sure you've come across this as well. There's... There's quite a few people in our field where if you read the title of a paper and you see who the lead author is, you automatically know what that paper is going to say. Like, and that shouldn't be the case, you know? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to, to take money to promote a certain product or idea, but is that that different than, you know, building an entire line of research around a particular idea that you've, you know, been promoting in the literature and, you know, you using this concept that you've been promoting in the literature to gain promotion and tenure? Like you're still, you're still like tangibly benefiting off of this thing you believe. Like that's, to, to me, that's probably not quite as, severe as an actual financial conflict of interest but i i mean that can clearly still influence uh how people are going to design research how people are going to interpret results i feel like that's something that should probably be disclosed more frequently yeah and i mean i would also push back a little bit to agree with you more than you agree with you <laughs> so you mentioned like it's, it, it's theoretically like kind of a bigger thing to take money for it. But I would argue that there are certain select cases where the value of supporting the hypothesis is more valuable than money. So like you'll, you'll find instances where researchers name a thing after themselves. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And, it, and they spend 25 years doing research on that subject with this very established metric or tool or theory that bears their name mm -hmm. they care more about that 
standing the test of time in many cases than they care about getting $11,000 from some company. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I think in some cases, like, there are certain people that, like, have been pushing, like, I mean, you name it, any particular nutritional stance that it's like, dude, there's no evidence. And they're researchers, but there's no evidence that's going to get them to say, like, yeah, my last 30 years of research, probably off base. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, but in any case, so... I, we're, I, we're, whereas with con- with financial conflicts of interest, you know, someone comes along with a bigger check, <laughs> you can you can maybe be a little flexible. Exactly, yeah. So, um, in any case, yeah. I, I do like the idea, though, of, of disclosing some of those intellectual conflicts. Like you said, there's... There, there's a lot of people that you just you see what the paper is about and you're like well if it was bad they wouldn't have bothered to publish it you know there, there's no way they're going to yeah. spin this as a negative thing yeah for sure okay so what they did here was they put together a panel of 14 members including uh three community members uh they were from a total of seven countries and they voted on the final recommendations after they reviewed uh the five system systematic reviews that they put together um they they noted in their methods considerations of environmental impact or animal welfare did not bear on the recommendations so as a as a matter of methodology they basically came out and said we don't want to deal with environmental impact we don't want to deal with like animal rights ethics stuff because we don't feel like that's our place for this and so that's why it's a little bit annoying when you see like the the commentary saying but what about the environment it's like they very much told you on the front end we don't want to do it we don't want to get into it um, now, if you want to read more about this, um, after you listen to it from us, obviously, examine.com did a little article, um, that goes, if, if you prefer the written medium as well, um, sometimes people ask us for transcripts and I think Greg to earn his keep around here should probably just type it up as he re-listens to it and just make those available. But, um, in any case, there is kind of a written article about this. You're making a pretty big assumption that I re-listen to this. I'm sure you re-listen to it. I mean, I don't. I, I put my my hot takes out into the into the ether and hope for the best. Well, I re-listen to it like thirty times because I have to edit. Well, yeah, thing. That, that's because you edit it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to prevent you from making tragic mistakes and causing beefs and getting us sued and put in jail and stuff. So I've only broken federal laws on this podcast like three times. Correct. And we're like twenty episodes in. Yeah, I feel like I feel like one legal transgression per seven episodes is not that bad. It, it's not that bad. Okay, so they made these studies, and by the way, um, when we, we're talking about red meat, we're talking about beef, veal, pork, and lamb, stuff like that. We talk about processed meat. Uh, we're talking about meat that is salted, cured, smoked, things of that nature. So just some operational definitions there. Now, uh, the recommendations, getting to the good stuff. The authors, uh, the panel kind of took their vote. And the panel suggested that adults continue current unprocessed meat consumption. They considered that a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. They also suggested that adults continue their current processed meat consumption. Again, it was a weak recommendation with low certainty evidence. Uh, The votes for both of those recommendations uh, were 11 votes to continue consumption with three votes uh, for a weak recommendation to reduce consumption of red meat and processed meat. So that's how the tally went down. And uh, I think one thing that's important to to consider here 
is when they did these systematic reviews, uh, you know, they did these five reviews, and generally speaking, the results of the individual reviews kind of pointed toward weak evidence showing a modest benefit of reducing intake of red meat or processed meats. So a lot of people saw the headlines for this paper and were like, oh my God, a huge sea change in the nutrition research. I don't think that's a fair characterization of what the study found. And um, actually, I don't think the authors think that's a fair characterization because they did mention that their recommendations do not seriously challenge previous recommendations. Basically, what they were trying to get across here is, you know, obviously, based on the scoring recommendations, as we mentioned, a lot of this observational research they would consider of relatively low rigor compared to a, you know, a controlled trial. So that bears a big, um, that has a big bearing on considering it to be low certainty evidence uh, based on the scoring system. But I think what they're trying to get across is we have some of this observational evidence of modest health benefits. Um, I think when they included some of the preferences and values uh, of how people view reductions uh, or, or really just any kind of drastic change to their dietary habits, I think that is probably what tipped them in the direction of saying, yeah, there might be some benefit, but it kind of seems like a pain. You might be fine if you just continue your thing. Probably won't hurt if you reduce it, but whatever. I think that's pretty much where they ended up with their recommendations. Um, And the authors note, they, they say, for the majority of individuals, the desirable effects, which they note, are a potential lowered risk for cancer and cardiometabolic outcomes. Uh, but they said, you know, those desirable effects of reducing red meat consumption or processed meat consumption as well, they probably don't outweigh the undesirable effects, which they consider to be impact on quality of life, uh, the burden of, of modifying those meal preparation and eating habits. And they basically say, you know, they gave this weak recommendation, but they do acknowledge that people's values and preferences do differ a lot. And, you know, individuals who are are fully informed about the risks of consuming red meat and processed meat, um, they may very well choose to limit that consumption. And if they do, I'm going a little bit off their words here, but I, I think it's safe to conclude if you were to reduce that red meat and processed meat consumption all other things being held equal, it would probably have a negligible to a modest positive effect on your health outcomes. I, I think that's a pretty fair thing to say. I, I think the authors of the paper would agree with that. So really, the what this paper brings to the table in terms of challenging pro- previous recommendations is they just kind of downplay the certainty and the magnitude of the effect, where I, I think earlier recommendations would, would have, have you believe that, you know, even the slightest reduction in intake of red meat or processed meat would have a tangible, large, meaningful effect on your long-term health outcomes. I think they are of the opinion that those recommendations probably overstate the certainty that we have and the magnitude of the effect. And they fail to account for the fact that a lot of people probably don't want to change that particular aspect of their diet. Yeah, that that makes sense. So, um, I, I mean... W- as with most things, it it just comes down to how one assesses costs and benefits, you yeah. know. Um, and I mean, even if they found a large effect, it's still like a cost benefit analysis. Um, if so, like 
for example, just using myself here, when I first learned about, you know, the effects of especially processed meat, potentially on cardiometabolic health outcomes, uh, there's, there's a pretty big history of heart disease in my family. Um, and so like, I still like steak, I'm still going to eat steak. Uh, you know, I like meat in general, I eat a fair amount of it, but, uh, especially since it seems that the processed meat is likely more deleterious than the red meat. If, if one or the other does, does have that effect, um, when I learned that, like I did cut back quite a bit on how much like sausage or bacon I ate. Um, growing up, we ate a lot of sausage and a lot of bacon. Um, and you know, for, for me, that was, those were relatively easy substitutions to make. Um, you know, if I wanted to, if I would have had like sausage and eggs for breakfast, you know, if I've prepped chicken beforehand, I'll just like cut the chicken up, throw it in a pan, toss some like sage and rosemary in, gives it kind of a sausagey flavor. It's not as good as sausage, but like it's probably a better alternative. And that's like a, a relatively easy substitution for me to make. Um, you know, but it, like it's, it's also not something where like I'm going to stop con consumption of all sausage and bacon in perpetuity forever, you know? Um, and so like if... If the effect were larger, I would probably eat even less. If the effect were smaller, I might still be eating more sausage and bacon. To me, that seems like for myself and how I assess risk, an appropriate way of of dealing with the evidence that's out there. Um, but, you know, like if you're like a Ray Kurzweil acolyte and you're trying to live as long as possible until you meet the singularity and, you know, you want to extend your lifespan by any means necessary a small possible effect that may be worth making large changes for and saying like well fuck it i'm never eating bacon again i don't know for sure this is going to do something bad to me but it might and since my only goal is longevity at any cost possible or at, at any cost imaginable you know it's worth it to me to cut bacon out of my diet forever um or like, you know, if you're a fucking nihilist, just just taking a YOLO approach to life, you like bacon, may shorten your life a little bit, but God damn it, you like bacon and you're just going to eat a bunch of bacon, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very fair approach to these types of things and it, it seems quite intuitive. Um, you know, there was there's a, a guy named David Katz at Yale and he's a big plant based uh, nutrition guy. I don't necessarily agree with all of his takes on nutrition, but I, I, I believe I remember seeing him write an article a while back that the whole like thesis of it was like, Hey, let's, let's use what we know. And I think when it comes to nutrition, we have some things figured out, but there are some things we haven't figured out. You know, I, th there's that, those research questions on the horizon that we're still trying to figure out. And the body of literature is a slow moving ship. You know, it kind of continues moving forward slowly. It's not particularly nimble, but we're still just hammering out those additional details study by study. But I think a lot of people resent that idea and don't have the patience to watch it pan out. And so a lot of people I think are drawn to the 
the opposite of that, which is what if we took everything we knew, threw it in the trash, flipped the paradigm, and found this one quick like trick, you know? So like these these very fringe diets that say like, what if the whole secret all along was blank? Fill in whatever you want. I mean, dude, I, I think that's how most people are trying to interpret this paper. So I, I will admit to not having read this. Yeah. Um, I could not possibly care less about a topic. <laughs> J- just throwing that out there. Um, but I mean, I, I saw a bunch of people sharing articles about this study or just like posting about it on social media. Yeah. And, you know, the majority of my timeline is is like some sciencey people who are also meatheads and then just like straight up meatheads. And literally the only take I saw about this paper, the only one, the only thing I saw literally anyone saying is, ha, like suck it vegans. I'm going to eat as much red meat as I want. Science says it's fine. No risk whatsoever. Get fucked. Like, like that was, that was the only take I saw anywhere on social media. Um, which is which is exactly what you're describing. Like it's, yeah. it's I mean, were we not discussing this right now, I would have no idea what the actual paper said because like that's that's the only take I've seen about the paper. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. So people like that idea of let's dump what we know out, latch onto a completely alternative paradigm, and hope it pans out. And people have done that with every nutrition trick in the book. Especially if it justifies your biases. Absolutely. So in the light of this paper and all the headlines it's generated and all the discussion, I think it is a good opportunity to go back to what do we feel like we know about nutrition? There are some good things. Good things would include eating a whole bunch of fruits and vegetables with fiber, eating some good fibrous grains, mixture of some dairy and seafood and legumes and nuts and seeds. The stuff's pretty good. Uh, Lean meats tend to look pretty good from a health perspective. Stuff you want to keep an eye on. Very excessive intakes of saturated fats, added sugars, you know, refined starches, processed meats. It doesn't mean you can't have some of them. It means that generally speaking, those are the things that when we look at the totality of the literature... There are some studies saying, hey, maybe just keep an eye on this. Keep it within a low to moderate intake. That shouldn't be a particularly controversial position to hold. Um, I'm not demonizing any one of those particular things, but it means in the context of a complete diet, they should not dominate the diet, and they should be scaled in proportion to overall energy balance. And a great example of that is for most people, the recommendation to reduce excessive added sugars and ultra processed carbohydrates, that's generally a good idea. But if you wanted to look at who's consuming the most of that stuff, it's probably some of the healthiest people in the world. It's people that do a whole bunch of endurance training. And as long as they're not exploding their hearts, because I know there's some like long term, like really extreme (laughs) endurance athletes actually are not the healthiest people in the world. So I walked right into that trap, but I knew you're going to call me out for that. But, you know, people who do a whole bunch of endurance exercise recreationally and are of good body composition and are just using those carbs to fuel their workouts, they tend to have very, very good health outcomes in the long term. So you have to contextualize this stuff. But but like I said, generally speaking, 
a, a diet that has excessive energy and tends to be dominated by saturated fats, added sugars, refined starches, and processed meats, it's probably not the best idea. You want to keep an eye on those things and keep them moderate in terms of intake. Stuff to avoid, trans fats, and excessive alcohol intake. That's kind of what we know here, and I don't think this paper makes a meaningful splash in terms of turning any of those concepts on their head. Um, you can get into the nitty-gritty of exactly how much saturated fat should be taken in, exactly how risky um, uh, processed meats are. But generally speaking, what they're saying is, hey, all things considered equal, yeah, there probably is some kind of you know modest risk associated with super high intakes of either of the two. Um, most people don't really want to change. It's kind of a cost-benefit thing. Now, with red meat and processed meat, some of the things to keep in mind is like, well, if they're problematic, what exactly is problematic about them? And there are a couple ways to look at it. First, you could look at, you know, one of the struggles with diet uh, studies in general, especially observational ones, is we have to consider whether the presence of one thing is what's problematic or if it's displacing other things from the diet. And mathematically, you can try to suss that out. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind is when we do these observational studies and we see a diet that's super high in, you know, fatty red meats and processed meats, there it's probably not like, what do you have for breakfast? Well, I have a nice spinach and tomato salad and nine pieces of sausage. That's not how those meals look. So you have to consider from an observational perspective, to what extent are we seeing these things as being causative of issues and how would that differ in the context of a generally complete diet you know because a lot of times eating more of one thing means you're eating a lot less of other things so i would imagine that well and it's it tends to be even more confounded now i mean i i think i think i would probably have more faith probably in the initial data set that the recommendations to limit red meat consumption were based on because like general so you know for 30 40 years we've been told eat less red meat eat less processed meat and so generally like the people who hear that and take that seriously and then proactively try to reduce red meat and processed meat consumption are probably also people who will take you know other bits of of advice that they perceive to be healthy and so, you know, people who consume less red meat, less processed meat, also tend to have lower rates of smoking, also tend to have lower rates of alcohol consumption, generally get more moderate to vig vigorous physical activity, like meeting activity guidelines. And so, like, at this point, kind of what you're getting at, like, if you, if you use, like, a modern data set, you can try to statistically control for a lot of this stuff, but it's it's going to be a big confounded mess. Mm -hmm. Whereas before there was the negative perception of, oh, like red meat, saturated fat, that might be causing issues. I feel like that would probably be a less confounded data set. But I also think you would raise a lot of reviewers' eyebrows if you're like, hey, I'm trying to publish original research based off of an archival data set from the 1960s, you know? Yeah. So it's... It's, def it's definitely tough, and because there is the interaction between, like, government and, like, public recommendations and people's behaviors and how health behaviors cluster, it's 
it's more confounded now that those recommendations have been out there than it would have been were those recommendations never made. So it's it is very difficult to study. Big time. Yeah, because you're you're not just looking at the intake of that thing, you're looking at all of the habits and behaviors associated with what happens when a person or or a person who eats a lot of those things, what else do they eat? What else do they not eat? And what other health related behaviors do they engage in? Um, so that that's, it makes it really challenging for sure. And I don't think there's a really good way around that aside from just continuing to develop our, our research methods and statistics, uh, to become more and more nuanced as we go. Um, now, with red meat and processed meat, looking at potential causative issues of, of how they might uh, deleteriously affect these cardiometabolic outcomes uh, and cancer risk, a lot of the things that come up, uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, heterocyclic amines, nitrosamines, and other N-nitroso compounds. Um, when you look at some of these things that are, that are potentially driving some of these negative health issues aside from just the the energy and, and the fat content as well one thing you can keep in mind here is there are potentially ways to minimize that risk with how you prepare the food and what you eat it with and so um, my takeaway when I look at at a study like this is you know when we look at the totality of the evidence it, it does seem as if there's at least a small to moderate risk associated with super high intakes of fatty red meats and processed meats. Um, I think you can potentially, it's, no one's ever going to be like, ah, you know, my health took a really negative turn once I stopped eating sausage and bacon. It's probably not going to be the case. So it it would be prudent to at least incur, at least approach that from the, the mindset of aiming for moderate intakes, you know, at most, but also, you have to consider how you're cooking them, and I, I think it's, uh, I think there's evidence to suggest that probably what you don't want to do is scorch the hell out of them, and probably what you don't want to do is consume them in the context of a diet that's generally low in fiber and antioxidants. I think th- th- that by managing the cooking procedures and by managing other aspects of the diet and the meal in which they're consumed to promote more antioxidant and fiber intake, I do think uh, there's high potential to at least uh, attenuate that risk to some extent. Yeah, so one one other thing I would note as well is um, if you if you are planning on especially grilling meats, one of the things that, that has been looked at in the research previously is the effects of prior marinating on nitrosamine formation during mm-hmm. the grilling process. And so you you can't fully mitigate it, but you can to some degree mitigate the effects, like the negative effects of high heat cooking methods by marinating your meat first. Um, and also, I mean, marinating is great. So, you know, that's a that's a combined health and culinary tip. If you marinate your meat, it's probably going to be tastier, probably going to be juicier, and probably is going to be a little bit healthier for you if you are planning on using a high heat cooking method. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap things up a little bit as it pertains to this, because I know Greg's bored out of his mind <laughs> until until we talk about grilling. Um, listen, I, I've said some things that might sound as though I'm like, you know, 
anti-animal fat, anti-red meat, anti-processed meat. Those aren't really true. And I do, I do believe that we've probably demonized animal fats more than we should have in previous decades of nutrition research. Um, but that doesn't mean to go the complete other direction and be like, I'm going to have a diet that's, you know, 70% animal fats. There, there's nuance here. So I think it is prudent to have some, some semblance of control over your intakes of fatty red meats and processed meats. I think low to moderate takes would, uh, intakes would be advisable. Um, and I think, it, like you said, if your only goal, your only goal was to construct a diet that was going to promote your health and minimize long-term disease risk and mortality risk, I think it's hard to suggest that you would have any diet other than one that is uh, pretty heavily plant-based uh, with, with sufficient protein to get the job done, but you would not be eating a diet that's extremely high in red meats and processed meats that were cooked at high temperatures. There's no way you would justify that. For sure. One of, one of the funny things actually is uh, the the very small handful of times that I've like stuck my toes in the nutrition waters. One of the pieces of feedback I get is like just how different uh, nutrition recommendations for living forever versus getting huge are. So, you know, we look at something and it's like, oh, this uh, this stimulates the mTOR pathway and this causes an increase in IGF-1. Those things both sound awesome. Let's get more of that. And then like the longevity folks, those are two of the main things they look at for the opposite reason. It's like, yeah. let's keep mTOR as fucking low as possible and let's try to get IGF-1 through the floor. Because, I mean, essentially those are things that are going to be associated with cell growth, like muscle cell growth, but then also uh, like initiating and progressing along the cell cycle and like cell turnover. So, you know, you're, you're going to just like go through your stem cell lines a little bit faster and age quicker if IGF-1 and mTOR high all the time. And so like you want to get jacked, like that's maximizing jackedness and maximizing longevity there, there's to some degree it's related. Like if you, uh, if you look at the research on like lean mass or um, or muscular strength, when someone's like sixty, that's a reasonably strong predictor of like subsequent lifespan. But a lot of that can probably just be accounted for by is someone generally active or not. Um, so there, there is certainly some relationship between being at least somewhat jacked and living a while, but. Like trying to maximize hugeness and maximize longevity, those are inherently contradictory things just because like the signaling pathways associated with them are literally opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it is funny when when you look at the longevity research. I've I've had to do that in the past for coursework. And uh yeah, you see like you know, big, big increase in mTOR activity. And you're like, oh, cool. And then the next sentence is like, this was a disastrous intervention. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, um, but yeah, so, you know, wrapping things up, I, I kind of view this thing like uh, the old debate about like post-workout protein. And a lot of times people are like, oh, it's it's maybe not that big a deal to have it immediately. But then the other question is like, what does it hurt? 
to mm-hmm. have it. Like, why would you intentionally delay that unless your your stomach just can't handle a post workout meal? You know, it, it's almost like viewing it as the null hypothesis. Is like, yeah, it's probably a good idea if you're training training really hard. Get some protein after. That makes sense. And I kind of view it the same way with with red meat and processed meat intake. When you look at the literature, it's either going to have a negligible to potentially slightly deleterious effect. So all other things considered equal, if it doesn't hurt you to to remove it in terms of like, you know, if it's something you're not going to horrifically miss from your life, it probably makes sense to, to keep a, an eye on it and keep it at a low to moderate intake. If you absolutely love it to the extent that you don't care about the health risk, your decision's already made up. I'm not going to try to talk you out of that. But I, I think that understanding of, of how to approach red meat and processed meats is very consistent with with the most recent paper of, listen, if you're not going to miss it, it probably, you're never going to regret limiting it from a health perspective. Um, the question of exactly how deleterious is it, it's still a little bit up in the air and up for debate, but we're certainly looking at something that either has negligible effects or slightly negative. It doesn't mean we have to demonize it. It doesn't mean you can't have some of it in your diet. It just means let's take a moderate approach. It's not at all at, at the place yet, I don't think, where we would, like with trans fat, no one is on team trans fat. Like I, for, I haven't found. For, for the most part. Are there people that are on team trans fat? No, no, no. I mean, there are, uh, so so most of the like industrially produced. Hydrogenated fats, oils. Nobody's right. on team hydrogenated oil. Yeah, I, I was yeah. just going to throw out there that like CLA is a trans fat, isn't right. it? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. But yeah. No one is on team hydrogenated oils. Yeah. Um, I don't think red meat is anywhere near that yet. I think red meat generally has a better track record than processed meats. Um, if you're not going to miss it, it's probably a good idea to keep them at low to moderate intakes. And that's not super controversial. And that's not necessarily conflicting with this most recent paper. Okay. So now we've got a coach's corner segment about deloads. And uh, deloads are... Uh, I find them very interesting because I think there's a lot of variation in how people approach them. Um, it, it's a, a question I get a lot from my clients when they first start working with me is what do deloads look like? How often are we going to do them? Why do we do them? And it, it's it's always cool to see different perspectives of, of how people handle deloads in the process of programming for themselves and for a client. So, I really want to figure out how Greg approaches them first and then talk a little bit about how I do it with my clients. So Greg, deloads. First of all, why bother? So that's a good question. And I think there are two potential different answers to it. So one is just, and and I think this is probably the most the most reasonable reason to like program deloads, like say, you know, six weeks from now, we are going to take a deload uh, is just kind of as a, as a prophylactic, just like a better safe than sorry type thing. Um, You know, because you try to write training programs that are going to be, uh, you know, reasonable volumes, intensities, frequencies, whatever, like a, a training load that people can recover from. But you know, sometimes you get volume too high. Sometimes people have life stressors going on that come up out of nowhere. And, you know, a training program that should have been appropriate that someone could recover well from, you know, now it's a little bit too much and fatigue starts accumulating. 
And, you know, if it accumulates for six months, you might really run into issues. But if, if it accumulates for a handful of weeks, eh, they might feel a little worn down, but they're probably going to be fine. So um, if, if it's a situation like that, especially if you're just putting like a general program out there into the world and you're just trusting that people will do it and not fuck it up. Or, you know, sometimes with like a, a distance coaching relationship where, you know, it's not like in-person coaching where you're going to be seeing and talking to the person multiple times per week and being able to get a good read on them. Um, you know, it's not a bad idea to program deloads every, depending on the person, maybe every four to eight weeks um, just as a prophylactic. Like, you're not going to miss out on that much by taking an easy week of training, but, you know, on the the non-negligible chance that maybe they are starting to accumulate a fair amount of fatigue, that's going to give you a chance to knock that down, make sure they're, you know, in, in a band of stress that they can recover and adapt positively to. Um, so I think that is, I think, the main reason for using proactive deloads. Then... Uh, personally, I prefer in my own training reactive deloads, where instead of saying, I'm going to deload every six weeks, no matter what, I say, I'm going to train in such a way that I think is appropriate, try to match my training stress to my recovery capacity. And then if I fuck that up, I'll take a deload. Um, so, you know, if things are going well, I'm sleeping well, I'm not making dumb decisions with my training. Maybe I'm not going to deload for a year at a time. Uh, or, you know, if I do deload, it's just to, you know, taper for a meet or something. Uh, but, you know, if shit hits the fan work-wise, I have just a random week of insomnia, which happens from time to time, then it's like, okay, I'll do a deload. I didn't plan to do to do this deload, but I'm feeling worn down. I'm feeling fatigued. I need a deload. I'll take a deload. Um so yeah, there's there's proactive and reactive deloads. I tend to favor reactive deloads if you're coaching yourself and you have and you're decent with being honest with yourself and listening to your body's feedback. Um, or if it's like an in-person coaching relationship where you know you can communicate with the person, you're seeing them multiple times per week, you can kind of get a vibe on like how they're moving, how they're feeling. Um, so in those situations, I tend to favor reactive deloads, certainly for just putting like a general program out there in the world where you hope that people do it and don't fuck themselves up, or for a lot of like distance coaching where you you can get feedback, but it's probably not going to be, especially like the subjective feedback of just like just seeing the person and being able to get a read on, on how they're feeling. Um, I think that more proactive deloads make more sense in those situations. And so a, a deload, are, are you pretty much always using a one-week duration, or, or is that flexible? It's flexible. Um, so I don't know. It, it depends. Um, for reactive deloads, it's just like however long I need. Mm -hmm. Generally, it's like three days maybe. Oh, okay. I mean, just because like, dude, unless... Unless I did some really stupid shit, I should be able to recover from just about anything in three days. Like, that's that's a long time. 
mm-hmm. especially for someone who's, you know, reasonably well-trained. Theoretically, they have, like, repeated bout effect adaptations to their muscles and nervous system, so they're hopefully not going to be able to get too fucked up in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, generally... It, it, I think that for most people, most of the time, somewhere between three and five days is probably sufficient, but also people, I mean, we live in a world that runs on a seven-day week, and so seven days isn't that much more than three to five days. If you accidentally, if you push your deload two days longer than you needed to push it, that's fine. Like, that's probably realistically one training session, and if you take one more easy training session than you needed to... That doesn't cost you anything, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't think I don't think having week long deloads is a bad idea. I don't gen- I don't think it's generally necessary. Um, but you know, it's it, that's probably a good, sa- better safe than sorry length of a deload. And so when you do a deload, um, I- I've seen people kind of propose different approaches to it. Some people just don't train. Uh, some people drastically reduce their volume. Some drastically re- reduce their intensity. Uh, what does a deload actually look like for you? So to me, I think I think it's important to keep the purpose of a deload in mind. Um, and I'll note that a deload is similar to a taper, but it's not exactly the same thing as a taper. Uh, it, it's you know, certainly ideal if you feel good at the end of a deload and that also coincides with performing better because you're less fatigued. But, you know, in general, after a deload, you're not trying to hit your best one rep maxes ever the first session back from the deload. So that differs from a taper where, you know, you probably do need to keep you know, somewhat reasonable loads moving just so by the end of it, you're you're not detrained and you're able to, you know, put, put a good total on the platform. So w- with a deload, I think, again, it, it kind of depends on the person um, and it kind of depends on why you're taking the deload in the first place. And it depends on how that individual reacts to different training stressors. And so if, if it's someone who... So, like, using myself, for example, uh, intensity doesn't really bother me. Like, just, I think, from doing Bulgarian-style training for a while, like, I can hit a one-rep max, and if that's all I do in that session, the next day I'm going to feel like I did nothing. Um, Whereas, like, hitting a true max in training may really cause a lot of fatigue for someone else. But for me, like, if my volume gets reasonably high, that fucks me up and really, really wears me down. Whereas for other people, they do a bunch of volume and less intensity, so they could do more volume and that wouldn't affect them as much. So it's going to kind of depend on what training variable causes the most subjective stress to someone. So for me, if I'm taking a deload, that means volume is going to come way down. Generally, intensity is going to come down a little bit as well, but for me, the most important variable is volume. For someone who is more affected by intensity, but, you know, their, their volume capabilities are great, and higher volumes don't cause as much fatigue for them. For them, a deload is absolutely going to involve a big reduction in intensity and probably a little reduction in volume as well, but intensity is the the main variable you'd want to make sure you bring down. Um, And again, if you just want like a middle-of-the-road approach, reducing both is fine. Um, 
you know, something like dropping intensity 15-20% and volume 30-50%, to that's probably going to make for a pretty decent deload for most people. Are there any instances where you would just take time completely off? So... I, I think the answer to that kind of depends on practicality more than anything else. Um, I don't think it's like quote unquote optimal theoretically to just take time completely off of training. Um, but at the same time, again, it's like, and I, I think it depends on like how frequently you're doing it. So for example, if you're doing a program where you do three weeks of training and then deload on the fourth week, so like a 531-esque setup, you probably don't want to take a quarter of your total training time completely off of training. Yeah. That's probably not ideal. Um, but you know, if you have a setup like that and you, you know, do like a more typical deload where, you know, you drop volume and, and intensity a little bit. And so it's basically like you have three hard weeks in one easy week. And you do that for a few months, and then on the fifth month, you're like, you know what? I'm feeling kind of burned out. I've been seeing way too much of the inside of a gym. I just want to take this week off. That's fine. You know, like t- t- taking a week off of training every four months, six months, whatever, like that's that's not going to be the end of the world. So yeah. unless you're doing that like all the time, I think it's probably fine. Um, again, it, it's probably not like the best thing to do. It's not theoretically optimal. But as long as, you know, as long as you're not taking like a week off every month, you're probably going to be okay. Do you recall seeing any research? I could have sworn I saw at least one paper like this, but it was with fairly untrained people. But they they use like pretty periodic weeks off. Have you ever seen that research where they compared continuous training versus people who just like trained for a little bit of time and then just stayed away from the gym? And it was kind of like an intermittent thing like that. Yeah, so there are actually a couple studies on that. Uh, the lead author for, for both of them is Aga Sawara. And the way that, that those studies worked is essentially one group would just train continuously and the other group would train six weeks on, three weeks off. And those three weeks off were just three weeks off, off. Um, and what they found is is over a, a pretty reasonable length of time, I, I want to say one of the studies ran 15 weeks and the other maybe ran 21 weeks or something like that, uh, the group taking periodic time off ended up having similar strength gains and similar hypertrophy to the group training continuously. One thing to note is those studies were on untrained lifters. So... You know, I I, pro- I I don't think it's probably ideal to take a third of your time completely off training if you're 10 years into the game and still trying to make progress. Uh, but but I, I do think it probably illustrates that time completely off isn't as deleterious as a lot of people think it will be. Especially when you're talking a one-week duration versus three. I mean, three weeks off is a significant amount of time off. Yeah, that, that's a long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like a week, it's fine. I, I think... I think lifting becomes such a large part of people's identities that like taking a week out of the gym completely is almost like a threat to identity to a lot of people. (laughs) And so like they want to believe they're going to lose all of their gains just so they can justify always going to the gym. Yeah. Uh, But man, yeah, like and, and so I mean, like talking to clients, they'll be like, hey, I'm going on vacation. Um. 
I'm not sure that I'll be able to find like a good gym near the hotel. Uh, like, what should I do with my training? I'm like, dude, like I can write you some workouts that you can do in your vacation, but you're on vacation. Like, just take time off. And they're like, oh, I can do that. I'm like, yes, you can do that. Come on. Like, y- you take two weeks off a year. That's that's not that's not gonna fuck you up. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like probably not probably not theoretically optimal, but. As long as you're not taking like a quarter of your time completely off of training by doing a complete unload once like one week out of every month, it's probably fine. And even if you did do that, that would probably be fine as well. We, yeah. We've talked about um, we've talked about John Cole on the podcast before. I'm pretty sure. I think we've talked about him on here. I think so. Um, so like the way he trained is he worked out once per week. Uh, those workouts were like six to eight hours long, but he just trained essentially all day every Saturday and not at all uh, Sunday through Friday. So, I mean, one could conceptualize that as a six-day deload every he, he week. He took a week off every week. He took, Yeah, th- th- that's what he did. He took, <laughs> of, of however many hours are in the week, he took that number of hours minus six off between sessions you know yeah um and he was fine so yeah i mean i i don't think you need to worry all that much about missing a week of training every now and again yeah i mean my approach to deloads is fairly similar i would add one additional thing so you talked about you know you could do your uh proactive deloads that are kind of scheduled you know into the program day one you've also got your reactive deloads where you're like, okay, this I can sense that it's probably time. I use something that I think you could call a prospective deload. <laughs> okay, and what I mean by that is I, I do enjoy traveling and I don't enjoy training while traveling because usually my workouts, even if I try to do them, they tend to suck and they take away from time. Like if I'm in London... I don't necessarily want to spend a significant portion of that in a gym, unless it's like a a fitness trip where I'm working out with fitness people, then that's like a social thing more than a training thing. But like if if I'm going somewhere to like see the sites, I don't necessarily want to spend a huge percentage of that trip in a gym. You know, I want to go see the sites. Yeah, for sure. And so what I'll do is if I see that I've got those travel dates in my calendar, I will program my training to basically crescendo up into that such that by the time I get to that trip, I really need a week off. So I'll almost like intentionally plan to overreach leaning into that trip. So, you know, if you're someone who gets a little bit stressed out about taking a week off or you want to make sure that, you know, a week off isn't necessarily optimal, but how do I make it less suboptimal? That's one thing that I've done in the past, especially when I was really ramping up my training. Like now I just don't train ever because I suck. But <laughs> but back then, that was a strategy I used that I actually liked a lot because like it, it, it essentially justified taking a week off. I've also done that in the past if I knew that I had a really crazy week where I was like, oh, that week has just deadlines all over it. Mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't spend eight hours in a gym that week, that's going to be a deload. And then I'll work backwards from there and kind of plan out my training accordingly. So I, I can tell you're, you're new to this whole back pain game. 
Because I do exactly the same thing, but actually the complete opposite thing. Instead of like ramping my training up to the vacation, I ramp it up to about a week out from the vacation. And then like the week before I leave for the vacation, that's a taper. Because, you know, if if I have like a hard deadlift day 48 hours before a long flight, my back's going to be fucked as soon as I land. So it's like... Instead of training hard leading up to it, I train hard leading up to it like a week prior, and then I then I taper into the flight. Okay. And, that, and that's clutch. I, I have done that. Uh, <laughs> what I do is I... <laughs> Dude, if, 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 if 17-year-old me could hop in a time capsule and come forward 10 years and listen to this podcast, he'd be like, how are you so broken, old man? What is wrong with you? Dude, there was a time in my life I I seriously uh I regret this so much. So I jacked up my nose wrestling and I needed nose surgery to help me breathe better. My wrestling career was done. It was over. I was literally just a high school student with nothing to do. Nothing I did in the day mattered at all. And I had excellent health care and I could have gotten the surgery done. And I swear to God, the reason I didn't get no surgery when I was in high school and had nothing to do and had incredible health care coverage was because I didn't want to take a week and a half off of training. Oh, yeah. I mean, same. And not, to, not, to th- not, not with no surgery, but uh, I mean, the, the back issues I have now, I think... St- they all started due to a back injury I sustained when I was like 16. Yeah. And I should have taken time off and rehabbed it better. But I thought the lifting I was doing at that point was just super important. And so I rehabbed it very poorly. Yeah. It's just crazy to look back. And when I was like 16, 17, 18, I was not going to miss a workout. Yeah. It it just would not happen. No, same. to, To look back and be like, oh, I'm... That is a person that I was. <laughs> it's like hard to even imagine. Like a 17 year old me would hate current me so much. And I also currently hate 17 year old me. So it's, uh, it goes both directions. Yeah, it's, it's a two way street. Yeah. I, I feel very, very similar. Yeah. Um, I, I have done that where I will actually decide the deload and then arrange my training accordingly. Now, when I work with clients, it's a little bit tricky because like you mentioned, the communication can be difficult. You know, it's easier to feel your own fatigue than to perceive an online client's fatigue. And so what I do is I have my clients fill out a weekly check-in that has questions pertaining to how's your mood, how's your energy level, how's your sleep, things like that. And I try to keep an eye on those trends over time. And so even with my online clients, I do make the deloads fairly reactive, but I usually, there's usually a period of time where I'm keen to like really check in on those. Like I'm extra alert because I'll, I'll look at the calendar and I'll be like, theoretically, we should be getting close to a deload. So it's kind of a mix between proactive and reactive where I can schedule out and be like, you know, I think over the next, within the next four to six weeks, it's probably going to be about time. But I will use those weekly check-in questionnaires and I'll look at their progress in terms of training loads. And I'll use those to be like, okay, now it's officially time. So it it is tricky with clients, but if you work with online clients and you want to make sure that you're maximizing the utility of those deloads, 
I think having a really nice check-in process with a good detailed questionnaire that goes beyond, you know, really basic stuff, trying to get a, a really good feel of how they're feeling, how that fatigue might be accumulating and uh, essentially how fresh or how stale they're feeling. If you can put together a good kind of weekly update to, to check out those types of factors, it can probably put you in a position where you're going to be able to, uh, like I said, really maximize the benefit of those deloads. And uh, another thing to keep in mind is sometimes we use a deload that is not technically optimal um, from a training perspective just because it, it's what we need. And what I mean by that is every now and then the deload has less to do with physical recovery and more to do with just basically having a psychologically restorative break, you know? So sometimes I'll say, you know what, we've been hitting it hard. You seem exhausted. You seem fatigued. It doesn't seem like you very much enjoy dragging yourself to the gym every day at this current moment. Let's take a week and just not go to the gym. And is that necessarily optimal in all cases from a programming perspective? Probably not. But sometimes that's exactly what somebody needs. And, you know, it, it goes more into, we, we brought this question up earlier, but not how to deload, not when to deload, but why to deload. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you just need a week out of the gym, and that's totally normal. Now, to play us out, we are going to do a little bit of a setup for the interview we have coming for the second half of this episode. All right, so for this week's episode, we've got a treat for all the listeners. We've got a really good interview with Michael Ray. And Michael is a chiropractor who has a very, um, he's got a really good understanding of the pain science. It's one of his main areas of interest. And uh, he's really big on the biopsychosocial model as it pertains to pain. And so he, he talks about it a lot in our interview. I certainly don't want to... Uh, steal his thunder because he'll go into some detail, but I did want to basically prime our listeners to have a general understanding of what that is before we jump into the deep end with the interview. So um, when it comes to pain, there was kind of always this like traditional viewpoint, a tissue gets broken or damaged, we experience pain, you fix the tissue, pain's gone. And that was kind of the old school way of viewing pain. Now, especially in the fitness space, there's increased awareness of this biopsychosocial model. So do you mind giving a very, very brief kind of overview of what that adds to the picture? Yeah, so the the older model of pain, like the, t the tissue damage exclusive model of pain, I guess, uh, is often referred to as the Cartesian model, um, named after Rene Descartes, because it assumes a mind-body duality, essentially. Um, so if you want to just read about Descartes' philosophy, that is something to do at another time. But basically, you know, he thought that, like, your body was essentially a meat sack and your mind was like a transcendent quality almost, and that the two weren't all that related. Um, and so how that relates to pain is, you know, some sort of tissue is damaged in your body, your brain, you know, senses that as pain, something going on in your body, which is very, very separate from your brain. Uh, and that's just kind of how pain worked. Um, where basically your mind is one thing, your body is another thing. Even though your brain is in your body, for some reason, they're completely separate and entirely separated and, and never the twain shall meet. The biopsychosocial model of pain recognizes that that is not at all how things work. 
that your brain is just as much in your body as your kidneys are. Um, and therefore, basically all of this stuff is interconnected. And so tissue damage can absolutely cause pain, certainly is something that very, very heavily influences pain. Um, if someone jabs an ice pick through your quad, that's going to cause tissue damage. It's going to hurt. Those two things are related. Um, however, tissue damage is, is not always causative of, of pain, and it is not the only thing that contributes to the pain experience. Um, so the biopsychosocial model of pain uh, essentially conceptualizes pain almost as like an emotion, uh, that tissue damage is is something that contributes to it. So, for example, um, if you are depressed, like if you have clinical depression, a lot of people who are depressed are also in a considerable amount of pain, even though they have you know no discernible tissue damage anywhere in their body. Uh, but their psychological state very much primes them to experience pain. Uh, another example is... A lot of times people with chronic pain, sometimes that starts as tissue damage. Like you have an injury, you have some sort of damaged tissue that hurts, then your body repairs that, but pain still sticks around. Um, e even, you know, in the ongoing absence of tissue abnormalities. Um, and then sometimes you can have tissue damage that, that doesn't coincide with pain. So for example, your menisci, are uh, they have a, a pretty low density of of nociceptors, or maybe they have none? I don't think it's none, but they don't have many, and so it's it's not at all uncommon to take scans of people's knees, see that their menisci look kind of fucked up, but they don't they're not experiencing knee, knee pain. They don't you know feel any deleterious effects of that. Um, so yeah, the the tissue damage does generally influence pain. It's it's related to pain in some way, shape, or form, but psychological factors and uh, psychosocial factors are also contributors to the pain experience. So that that's essentially what what this model is saying, and it's uh it is the model that, you know, the field of pain science, the people who actually study this stuff, say is, you know, the, the best way we currently have to explain the phenomenon of pain. Yeah, and so, you know, it's, as you said, our experience of what pain is is certainly influenced by psychological factors and social factors. Um, but, you know, I think it's necessary to get a little primer of that theory. Obviously, Michael is going to give a really great nuanced take on it. One of the reasons I wanted to prime the audience on that is because sometimes people with this concept get carried away and they say things that might be considered kind of dumb. And what I mean by that is like anytime there's a new exciting idea, there's going to be some really smart people that kind of nudge it along and give really nuanced takes. But there's going to be like some small percentage of people who kind of misinterpret that and go a little too far. And so we certainly don't want to give the impression that like there is no relationship whatsoever between tissue damage and pain. All this model indicates is that it's it's substantially more complicated than just a one-to-one -one relationship in which tissue damage causes pain and the pain you perceive is completely entirely proportional to the degree of tissue damage. 
It's more complicated than that. So I don't want listeners to perceive this as saying, oh, I think I messed myself up in the gym and I'm hurt. But I heard on the podcast that pain was just psych- just psychological. So I'm going to go ahead and train through that and hurt myself even more. Biopsychosocial still has bio in it. Okay, so don't ignore your experience of pain, but just understand it's more complicated than that. And obviously, Michael is going to go into a great deal of detail about what we can actually do with this model and what it means for us as it pertains to lifting. All right. So after the music, uh, Michael is going to give us a great nuanced take on the biopsychosocial model of pain and what it means for lifters. It's a really, really fascinating interview, and we hope you enjoy. All right, guys, we have Michael Ray on the line. How's it going, Michael? Hey, what's up, Greg? Oh, not too much. How about you? I can't complain. Just trying to get started on this Tuesday. It's Tuesday, right? Tuesday morning, I think. That that feels right. So we're we're actually very honored that you're coming on for, for all of the listeners. Uh, Michael is, uh, he, he and his wife are having their first kid soon. Um so this very well could be the last public interview he does for the next like 18 years ever. Um, yes. <laughs> so so we're we're happy to be be here for his swan song. Oh, so <laughs> that that may have been a, a darker start than was necessary, but <laughs> whatever. We're just going to roll with it. It's so <laughs> for for everyone who doesn't know, Michael um, is a master's in exercise science. Uh, he is a doctor of chiropractic, and he um, currently works with Barbell Medicine. So, um, and, and actually, I'm pretty curious about that. How, how did you get started with, with Barbell Medicine? What, what did that look like? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting story. I've known Austin probably the longest, Austin Baraki, for maybe three years now. And then I met Jordan uh, probably like two years ago or so. And so we had been like communicating throughout this time and uh, Derek and I had already been running the logic of rehab on our own for a couple of years. And we were thinking about doing some like remote stuff and doing other ventures. And we had been chatting with them and they were like, hey, why don't you guys just come do this with us? You know, we could use your help with topics like pain and rehabilitative services and just trying to help athletes work through and return to activity that are dealing with pain. And, um, you know, we enjoyed all the chats that we had previously in the past so it seemed like a good fit and so we came on board with them last august and it's been awesome since um do a lot of writing with them for for the blog as far as like pain and rehab related stuff and then do remote consultations with them so it's, it's been a good good fit i got no complaints very cool very cool um and your your master's in exercise science was that was that a program with a with a thesis or not it was, yes. I suffered through it and uh, apparently survived. What was your research on? Yeah, so it was on, uh, my master's is in exercise science, but my concentration was motor control and rehabilitation. And so okay. um, the lab I worked in was very heavy in neuroscience uh, and specifically neuroimaging, so MRI and fMRI. And so we did uh, a case control study on kids dealing with developmental coordination disorder 
which uh, the easiest way to think about this would be that they aren't developing normal, fine and gross motor skills um, at the age appropriateness we would expect to see. And uh, we wanted to see if we could identify, uh, hopefully no one's asleep just yet, <laughs> we could identify neural correlates with MRI, uh, comparing them to normatively, normatively developing children. We just wanted to see, do we find brain correlates that are different so we did structural MRIs, and then we also did fMRI, where we had them do a fine uh, motor task, like move a joystick in the MRI, and then compared the two to see if there were differences. And then the ultimate goal uh, was going to be eventually, which could have easily probably turned into a dissertation for a PhD, would have been to do um, an intervention to see if we could affect those neural correlates. That's super cool. So I, I know that a... Uh... A, a non-negligible amount of people will see doctor of chiropractic and get a little leery. They'll be like, well, why, why is he not a DPT? Um, yeah. but like, I, I, I know you, I know, you know, your shit like that. That's why we're having you on the podcast. Sure. Um, but for, for our listeners for whom our trust in you is not sufficient. Um, is there anything you would just like to say about, like the DC and how you personally practice that may help put some people's minds a little bit more at ease. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I honestly, I mean, you've heard me talk about this, I'm sure. Like I hate titles mostly because it's a false sense of perceived authority, but I get that it's a societal thing and uh, that's the world we live in. So they're not going to go away. But with that said, I'm actually happy people would be skeptical. I hope that uh, if we're doing our jobs correctly, especially what we try to do at Barbell Medicine is empower people to be inquisitive and questioning and skeptical. So I want people to question everyone. That would be my kind of like hope in life um, within reason. And so for me, um, I kind of went through a lot of different careers leading into what I'm currently doing. I actually didn't start my doctorate until I was 27. Um, and so I went through out of undergrad into law enforcement, did that for a little bit. I was also personal training on the side because I, I started working for gyms in 2003 in some capacity. And so I realized I like personal training a lot, but knew just enough to like not really do anything beneficial long term for people. Went back for a <laughs> master's. Yeah, it was like, um, maybe if I actually want to help you, I should learn a little more about this stuff. Um, so I left law enforcement. You know, you know that, that, that's a fucking crazy concept. Um, that That is... That's how uh, Eric and I are wired as well. And that's that's one of the things that I think bothers us the most about the rest of the fitness industry in general. Like so, so few people are capable of just looking at themselves objectively and and realizing like, well, shit, like I'm a dumbass. Like I need to <laughs> I need yeah. to go learn more things so I can do my job well. Um, so it's it's very refreshing to to bump into other people who are who are wired the same way. Oh, yeah. And I still like think I'm a dumbass, which probably helps perpetuate this idea of like, oh, I know nothing and I need to keep reading. But uh, so I, I did that did the master's. I was highly contemplating a PhD, but I was kind of ready to just get out and work. And so I went into cardiology as an exercise physiologist and did like pacemaker and ICD interrogations and uh, Holter monitors and EKGs and all that fun stuff. And I realized while I was in cardiology that um, 
health from a standpoint of modifiable risk factors wasn't a driving conversation that was happening where I was at. And we were in a large cardiology practice. We had six cardiologists on staff and multiple EPs and nurses and so on and so forth. And I remember vividly like having a conversation with one of the one of the clinicians. I was like, hey, I noticed like there's this 25 year old here with hypertension and hypercholesteremia. And we didn't really discuss like modifiable health risk factors. And their response, um, and, you know, I get it, like, after you're in the field for a while, we can easily become jaded. That happens to anyone. But they were basically like, yeah, it's not really worth having those discussions. Um, it, it, I did it over and over and over again. It goes nowhere. And people just want to pill. And that was kind of a point in my mind where I was like, this might not be the right path for me. Um, and I think things should be done differently. And so I got out of that and briefly did a research associate position at the University of South Carolina on a track study, which was looking at physical activity in middle schoolers. And then I realized, like, there is a way that I could go get a degree that gives me freedom, which turns out to be the doctorate of chiropractic. It gives you in the United States and all 50 states physician level status, which means I can do things like evaluation and management codes. So from like a billing perspective, if you went and saw a PCP, a primary care physician, we're using the same codes, which means I have direct access. And so that large freedom made me realize like I could go this route, get the piece of paper and then get out and practice how I wanted to. Now, throughout life, like I bought into a lot of silly bullshit, as I call it. I went and saw chiropractors. I had joint manipulations done. I had Graston. I had uh, all kinds of stuff. John needling really wasn't popular just yet when I was into that stuff. And when I got into my doctorate, I started questioning things and realizing like, oh, this is contextual effects and this is the placebo effect. And, oh, this is why I felt like I was getting positive benefit out of this. It had nothing to do with the narrative I was being given and everything to do with how I was perceiving what was happening to me and what my expectations were from that treatment. And at that point, it was a kind of a switch for me where I really started becoming skeptical of clinical practice. And then I was very fortunate to meet people that are still to this day mentors to me, um, like Derek, uh, which Greg, you know Derek as well, one of my best friends and, and meeting him and then meeting people in the clinical athlete network, getting questioned by other clinicians, like, well, why do you believe that? I was like, oh, fuck. I'm yet again in a situation where I don't know answers to stuff. Let me go find these things out. And that's kind of what's led me down this rabbit hole of like, what is pain and how should we be treating it? And what are the narratives we have support to say to people? That's probably way, sorry if that was a diatribe, like way off top. No, no. Uh, and Michael, I did have a question about that. You mentioned uh, during your schooling, that was the time where you started saying, you know, looking in the mirror and saying, well, why did I believe this worked? You started becoming more skeptical. Was that from the training you received uh, in your formal schooling, or was that kind of a, a self-motivated desire to figure out more of the the granular detail of not just the end effect, but how and why these things are are so common? I definitely think some of that thought process was instilled in schooling, but I also think it took me kind of being avid about trying to figure these things out, like uh, a willingness and desire to look at these things and say, maybe I'm wrong about a lot of stuff I thought about with clinical practice. Um, and, and maybe I should question this stuff a lot more and try to find supportive evidence for how we approach things. And chiropractic school like is very much based off of um, now for a lot of schools, it's moving more towards let's be neuromuscular skeletal rehabilitative clinicians. 
and farther away from like very dogmatic, uh, non-supported ideas. And I don't even give it the label of theory as some clinicians try to do for subluxations. And so that's a positive step in the right direction for the field. But it would be very easy if I didn't have that mindset to go through the schooling that I went through at a very old school philosophy type chiropractic school and think every patient that came to see me would just has a subluxation, like a bony misalignment that I need to fix. And if so facto, I solve cancer or whatever else with them, which are unfortunate narratives that go on in the field. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's a shame that the field's getting away from that because there's times that I want someone to just be able to pop my elbow in, in a particular way to cure my tuberculosis by letting my energy flow better. <laughs> and there's, there's right. just not that many people who, who have that art anymore. I you think know? Gwyneth Paltrow might be able to help you. Um, she, she runs Goop, right? I think they have stuff for that. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say that my main gripe that I have with uh, the field of chiropractic work is that um, while there are some very, very good ones, whenever I go and give a talk about supplements, there are supplement questions that I simply don't even know where to begin yeah. the answer and I think a lot of those originated from like some rogue chiropractor oh, who's yeah. like, I mean, dude, every time I give a supplement talk, it's like a thing I've never heard about. And it's like, did you know that it actually cures cancer? But all the pharmaceutical companies are, you know, burying all the evidence. And it's like, geez, right. I, I don't know where to start, man. My yeah, my, fa- my favorite one that uh, that got like kind of popular recently for that, like, na- quote unquote, natural cancer cures is uh ground up apricot pits um and and the re and the reason that's incredible is uh apricot pits have non-negligible levels of cyanide in them and so yes (laughs) and and so like consuming a bunch of cyanide pits will make sure you don't die of cancer because you die of cyanide poisoning first it won't matter right (laughs) See, that, that's the art is you got to flirt with that. You know, you need to kill most of the cells of your body, but not all of them. So right. you, you try to get as close as you can with those toxins, Greg. Then you forget I mean, all about it. That, that's, that's the kind of outside the box thinking that, that big pharma doesn't, doesn't want you to do. Like, you know, they, they, they may be able to study a drug that's, you know, 60% effective at eradicating this cancer, but... If you can take a natural remedy that is 100% effective at killing cancer cells because it kills all of your cells. Um, I feel like better that's better than radiation, Greg. I don't, yeah, that, I don't really know. That's, like. <laughs> that's just another approach to treating things that I feel like people's minds aren't unlocked enough and unleashed enough to really conceptualize yet. That's you just all I'm need saying. to open your third eye, Greg. That's really hell, what we need to have yeah. here. Now, I, I would like to, in the interest of fairness, take a look in the mirror and admit that there are plenty of people with my schooling who say remarkably stupid things. So we're I, I, yeah. we're not picking on on that field, but I have gotten some very creative supplement questions <laughs> well, from from that area. It's it's interesting. Like, so I, I try as hard as I can to zoom out big picture as often as I can. And I think one of the biggest issues with the chiropractic field, uh, it's a curse and a blessing is I do have direct access, which means like day one, graduation, pass your licensure, and suddenly you have this power to go out and open your own business. With that comes this idea that, oh, I've got to keep my lights on. I've got to put food on my table for my family. 
I've got to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm not saying this is because we could certainly turn this into an ethical debate, but it drives people to look for things to profit off of. And I think because of that, they start seeking out alternatives of things they can sell to their patients because clinical practice is so complex and so complicated to talk about pain with people that they're like, well, I can just sign up with Standard Process, which is a major company within the chiropractic profession for supplements. And they can just tell me how to sell this. And now I've got another way to profit off of. And I don't think that's right at all, but I think that's probably what's happening. I, I think that's a I think that's a good jumping off point into what we actually wanted to talk about today. Um, so one of one of the reasons we we wanted to have you on is to discuss pain, because I think that that's um, I, I mean, p- pain is a concept that all of us have experience with, um, but I think it's something that is at least somewhat well understood in the research, but the um, like academic understanding of pain and what it is and what research tells us it is and how it operates is very, very different from the way most people and especially most athletes and coaches think about and conceptualize pain. So I guess just to lead us off, uh, what is pain and what are some like major misconceptions that most of our listeners probably have about it. Oh, um, I need some alcohol. <laughs> I will do my best to define what is pain. Although I, I will mean, say it's, it's, it's all, it's almost noon. If you, if you started <laughs> drinking on our show, we're, well, we're not going to throw stones, stones <laughs> and glass houses here. Unfortunately, I'm in my clinic and I have patients later. So i that may be frowned upon, but, um, Yeah, I think what is pain is the ultimate question that not only clinicians in today are trying to answer, but philosophers for an extremely long time have been trying to answer and discuss. Um, And I used to teach a seminar um, specifically on this stuff. So we taught scientific principles of sports rehab over a weekend. And one of the main talks was on pain. And I would actually open up with a DMX song that was rapping Nietzsche, basically saying like, you know, pain is a part of life and you have to find meaning in your suffering. And I think that that has a lot of applicability not to be like too uh, negative into this podcast. But when we're looking at defining pain right now, the best we have to give the field a collective definition would have been the International Association for the Study of Pain's definition, which came out in the 1970s. Um, And that was the initial step in the community from an academic standpoint to unify the field, to give a taxonomy to discuss the topic. And their definition uh, has a lot to be desired. But it was the first time where we saw them say that you could have actual or potential tissue damage during the experience of pain. So we know socially, most of us grow up believing, and me included, that pain equals bad equals tissue damage equals a void. And that's just, this is kind of a, uh, an innate biological adaptation, both from an evolutionary standpoint, but as well as from a social learning standpoint. And sometimes that works. Sometimes that is applicable that something negative is happening to me and maybe I'm having tissue damage um, to get into a little bit of the neuroscience of it. This would be if you had nociception, which is when the body has a thermal, mechanical or chemical tissue damage, then the nociceptors get activated and it sends up information uh, peripherally to the brain, right? 
And then at that point, the brand kind of has to make sense of what's happening. And the easy part of this and the biomedical part of this and what's been going on for thousands of years at this time about how we've been looking at this stuff is you have tissue damage that's correlated to your pain. Most clinicians say causative of your pain. And if I can come in and just fix this tissue damage, ipso facto, I fix you and I correct the problem. Um, and this is prevalent today. I'm, if I were to make bets, I would be willing to bet a lot of money, regardless of the clinician's title, whether it's MD, DO, DC, PT, whoever, if you go for a consultation, this is how the patient's going to be framed, that they're presenting with a symptom and there's some underlying pathophysiological or pathoanatomical cause that needs to be fixed. The problem with this is what we're realizing now since the 70s is there's another way to view clinical practice. And so George Engel came out in the 1970s as well. At the same time, the International for Association for Study of Pain was formed and said, hey, you know, we're looking at this a little bit incorrectly. That, yes, at times you could have tissue damage that's associated with pain. But regardless of the level of biological involvement, we're dealing with human beings and we need to also consider the psychological and sociological correlates of the painful experience. And so as we've slowly dived into that more and more and have done more research on the topic, we realize that pain, um, especially as it persists, is a very poor correlate to tissue damage, meaning you could present to my office with a complaint of acute low back pain. And it has very little to anything to do with actual some identifiable tissue problem. And in fact, this is what the research is showing us, that if I were to try to do a scan on your spine nine times out of 10, especially based off of your age, I'm probably going to find some quote unquote abnormality. And it's become so prevalent that we're now moving away from abnormalities because it sets the wrong expectation. And we're saying things like normative aging adaptation. And so we realized that you could... A, have a subjective experience of pain that may or may not be related to tissue damage, but then B, that's a highly individualistic experience that may be or is related to your past experiences, what you think pain actually means, and then your learned responses to dealing with it. I'll stop there because I don't want to go. I don't want to go too far down into the rabbit hole. So, so what you're getting at is essentially there are plenty of people who have imaging results that would look pathological that don't experience pain and plenty of people with, you know, a lot of pain who if you look at their scans, they are pretty unremarkable is what you're what you're saying, basically. Yeah, it's 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 super individualistic. Um, there's a study that I like to talk about when I give lectures on this um, that looks at the mosaic of pain. And they basically took 321 individuals and applied an external heat stimulus and then had them rate their pain. Now, if pain were a universal experience that wasn't highly individualistic, I would expect to just see a horizontal line. Everyone rated the stimulus the same because it's the same stimulus. What ends up happening is you have 321 different reporting of how they experienced pain and how they rated it. And so we know because of that and other studies like that, that this is highly individualistic and severity and intensity are individualistic. And severity and intensity actually don't correlate to anything meaningful from a biological tissue issue. Uh, to your point, Eric, if you presented uh, to my clinic with acute low back pain, let's say, A, I wouldn't image you because that's what the guidelines are telling us. There's very, very few cases we should image for that, for that experience. But B, uh, if I did have that imaging on hand, you could have textbook imaging and tell me you're in a 10 out of 10 out of uh, pain. 
But then I could look at someone else who has what we would classify as severe degenerative disc disease, uh, which is shitty language. And I highly don't recommend people use that language. But if I did that and you're like, I feel great. I don't have any issues. Um, you know, there's no problem. So being able to figure out like the individual's experience is pretty much the game of clinical practice. Yeah. So I don't want to jump right to the conclusion if you were planning to carry this on for another hour. But uh, my question would be, if you have these people coming in with pain, and in many cases, pain is dissociated from structural damage, what the hell do you do for their pain if, if there's not structural damage to fix? Yeah, that's kind of what we're all fighting about. Um, and the unfortunate part of this is what can happen with schooling is you do get indoctrinated and that forms your frame about how you look at clinical practice. Um, and it's something we try to, to fight against strongly, especially at barbell medicine. But it'd be easy for me as a chiropractor to see someone presenting with pain. The problem is a subluxation or a leg length discrepancy or pelvic torsion. or And I just need to fix that for them. And then if I were an MD... I could look at it from another lens and then I just need to give them a medication or from an orthopedic surgeon and I'm viewing them and they're imaging that I just need to do surgery or some type of other more intensive uh, intervention. Uh, if I'm a massage therapist, then I just need to ma massage, you know, quote unquote, tight muscles or strengthen loose muscles from a coaching standpoint. Like the list goes on that how we're framing the problem is how we think we should solve it. And it turns out we have a lot more evidence of what we shouldn't be doing and what we shouldn't be saying versus what we should be doing and what we should be saying. And so when the patient presents to our office with pain, we've got to figure out what's their experience with it. And then from a clinical standpoint, is there something that's going to negatively alter prognosis, like likely clinical outcomes for this case, if I don't intervene? And so if it's not going to alter case management, then that makes it a very different discussion about how to move forward. I think I've somewhat answered your question, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my my general question kind of about about this whole area is that um, so I, I think I think it's very clear that there's not like a one to one correlation between pain and tissue damage. You can be in a ton of pain with very little or no tissue damage and you can have a lot of tissue damage with no pain. But something that that I that I haven't seen addressed that I'm like genuinely curious about is like what what is what's the correlation between the two things and I and by that I I'm not asking for like a specific R value but like yeah. the the idea that that pain and tissue damage are the same thing I would I would assume has to at least come from a common experience that they are at minimum related so like kind of how how common are those cases where you know someone has a ton of pain but no tissue damage or a ton of tissue damage and no pain like does pain and yeah. tissue damage in general scale with like just some weird outliers or, or just kind of more generally what is the strength of that relationship there uh very poor unfortunately i i Wish it weren't the case because it would be so much easier that if you came in and I could highly correlate the two, then I know how to fix this issue. The immediate outset of this is a false premise, though. It's this idea that the biology and the pain experience are, are highly related. And like, but that's what George Angel was trying to demonstrate with the biopsychosocial model 
is that the person's thoughts and beliefs and their social kind of grooming, so to speak, and how they grew up in the environment influence it so much that it, it muddies the waters a lot. Um, and so we have people like um, Laura Mosley, who's written on this, who's a researcher out of Australia, and talks about that there isn't a, a strong correlation, and then most especially as pain persists. And so the usual talk is, well, if I shot you, you're probably going to experience pain. Maybe. Uh, it really depends on context because pain is a goal-directed, attentional-focused action. And so meaning like if I experience pain, the whole point is to draw somatic awareness to a body region and then I want to protect it. If I have a goal that outweighs my experience currently with pain, then I can just mute it. And soldiers in battle is a great example. The ability for someone to experience massive tissue damage, but with a goal-directed action that's far outweighing what they're experiencing. And so they can continue on until they complete the goal. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, I have this massive trauma to my system. And there's tons of uh, examples of this that people have posed, uh, like published case reports on with this stuff happening. Do I think that acute tissue trauma is more highly correlated with nociception, which may more likely have the person experience pain? Yes. But do I think that that could also not be the case? Yes. And is there a way that I can apply an algorithm to figure it out? No. It's too highly individualistic that it's not possible. You know, the the way you just explained that reminded me a lot of like the uh, like the does hypertrophy contribute to strength gains? Uh, God, I, I hate to even call it a debate, but the, the debate that's that's ongoing, because like there uh, the unsophisticated approach to that is like yeah like if you get bigger you're going to get stronger and then there's um some people who will go like the complete opposite route and say like oh these two things are completely unrelated but what it sounds like is you're saying tissue damage related to nociception nociception related to pain but there's a lot of other inputs in the system so you can't just draw a direct line between the two which is kind of similar to the the relationship between hypertrophy and strength gains. Like hypertrophy yeah. does probably contribute to strength gains, but you can't just draw a line between the two and assume that they're going to be like super tightly related in in all or even most circumstances. Yeah, and I'm somewhat familiar with that. I've been following you guys' uh, public discussions on that stuff, but I think that's a great example. Like it is, it is it's so individualistic that it's difficult to say the level of tissue damage that's involved with things. And so I don't even try to silo it out because I think that that would still be a dichotomous approach and a biomedical approach. So like, um, I don't think I've mentioned anything on this, but biomedicine is basically based on duality, right? Mind versus body. And you can trace this all the way back to Descartes. And the original I, I, I was about I, to say fucking Descartes. Did did yeah. Descartes ever <laughs> did, did he ever like actually write anything about that or did people just like take his mind body dualism and apply it to this stuff and call it a Cartesian model? So, I don't have I, an I, answer I, to I, that. I just I just want to know like how much to hate Who to blame because he was yes. obviously <laughs> a complete piece of shit. But like how big of a piece of shit was he? So I don't want to just blame him. And I do think that he gets a lot of the blame. But when I started looking into this, um, it turns out there's a, a lot of things that were going on. A, at the time, the church was the reigning supreme being of, of the land. And the church was basically like, hey, you guys can do, you know, you anatomists and you classical science people like Galileo, 
you guys can do whatever you want with the body. If you guys want to go do dissections, that's fine. I don't even care if you dissect the brain. But when it comes to thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors, we as a church own that. And so instantly you had this separation and divide of don't enter into the, don't bring the two realms together. This isn't, you're going to study the mind, we're going to study that, but you can study the body. And so now we automatically have this kind of car is, uh, body is machine, this mind versus body approach. And you see the birth of biomedicine where we're now technicians and our job is to just find a problem and fix it. And what's happening in the research is we're getting fucked and we're realizing things that we've been calling problems. We don't have data to support to say are actually problems. And they're just normative humanistic adaptations that occur either evolutionarily speaking or through adaptations through life, which the adaptations through life is where a lot of people are saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't call that spinal degenerative disc disease or we shouldn't worry about a chromium uh, shape uh, at all, or we shouldn't worry about rotator cuff tears in a lot of different contexts. And so that's where it gets really, really tricky. So I, I think that was a good segue, um, actually, because you you said you wanted to discuss joint morphology when you came on. Um, so so you mentioned uh, you mentioned acromions, um, and and that was one of the other things you brought up when we were when we were chatting before we started recording. Um, so a, as I understand it, um, you heard our first Q and A episode. And I believe either Eric and I, or maybe just me, um, made some statements about, I, I honestly don't even remember what, but I think it was related to joint morphology and injury risk. So like, what does the research say about that? And how did I fuck it up? <laughs> well, um, we all, I, I believe I, I did as well. So we, we're both in trouble, Greg. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't say in trouble and we all we all fuck things up so <laughs> um, and I fuck things up all the times it relates to pain but I mean so that's 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 why we're having yawn now like I don't wh one of the reasons why to this point I've like pretty much exclusively communicated with the internet by writing articles uh, and why starting a podcast was a little bit scary to me is like I know that I don't know a lot of stuff and that a lot of the things I think are probably wrong. And one of the things I can do in an article is like fact check the shit out of myself. Um, whereas like <laughs> hop on a podcast and it's like, you know, two or three guys shooting the shit. There very well may be things that come out of my mouth that are completely wrong because there's no way I can fact check myself in real time. Um, right. And it's not like we can keep all topics of conversation within the tiny little silo of things that I know really, really well. So one of, one of the things that I I'm glad that you reached out because like on one hand I could see someone probably justifiably. So just like going in some forum and like tearing me a new asshole and being like, ah, oh, this guy's a complete dumbass. Like look at what he was saying um, or like, you know, someone very well could have just said nothing to me and let it stand. So I'm, I'm glad that you reached out and said like, Hey, let's talk about this stuff. So then we could bring you on the show to, to correct the record, but not in a like super antagonistic way. Yeah. And, and this is one of those great examples where like, you know, we have a partnership on the podcast. So when you say a bunch of stupid bullshit about pineapple <laughs> on pizza, I can jump in and... <laughs> 
and I can help uh, correct your course a little bit. That does sound but, awful, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so it, I already dealt with that. Don't worry, Michael. But but there are some cases where we might both be going in the wrong direction. And it, hell yeah, we encourage people to say, hey, let me come on and teach you something. Well, I definitely appreciate you guys having me on. And, and the way you guys received it was much appreciated. The last thing I want to do to to people is be this confrontational ass. I already know uh, my resting state is probably being an asshole. So I try to temper it, especially I've known Greg for a number of years now. So um, I think from like, because I got off track there with joint morphology, that's where we were going, right? Yes. We, so usually like um, people want to talk about morphological changes on imaging. And there's a couple of ways we could frame this discussion. But let, let's start with like the shoulder. The interesting thing when we look at the shoulder is like we can see morphological changes at a very young age in adolescent athletes uh, and, and asymptomatic. So I wrote an article on internal impingement in the overhead athlete um, for the for the shoulder. And as I was going through the research literature, I quickly realized like, oh, we're seeing changes very early on. Now, one person could look at that and say, that's a maladaptive occurrence and that's going to lead to symptoms and that's going to be a negative long-term outcome for them. Another person can look at that and say, oh, their body's adapting to the sport demands that's being placed on their body. And that's more why I tend to reside. And that's kind of where the evidence is leading us. Because when we look at uh, prognostic factors, as far as it relates to imaging, we don't have a lot of ground to stand on, especially in like that cohort. Uh, it turns out very little ends up being related to symptoms down the road. And we can see these adaptations throughout life, even into like MLB players, and then uh, even afterwards. So it it turns out it's very difficult to look at imaging and see a chromium shape, whether it's like type one, type two, or type three, or subacromial spacing uh, in relation to the supraspinatus tendon. And it becomes even harder to say things like uh, you have a rotator cuff tear because you have an acromion shaped process that's type three and you have loss of subacromial space, and it's just grinding that tissue down. But what it turns out is if you do say those things, you have a negative net effect on the patient's beliefs and their willingness to go engage in movement and activity later in life. Where this gets really interesting is, so this whole, um, I'll kind of hyper-focus on this for a second. This whole idea as far as subacromial decompressions came from a, or an orthopedic physician named Nier in the 70s. And Nier basically did a non-randomized uh, study on like 50 some odd individuals and was like, yeah, we're just going to go in and decompress this area. That that makes sense to me. Let's do that. And then he had some weird follow up of like anywhere from eight months to five years, depending on the participant. Uh, and a lot of there's a lot of red flags that I kind of uh, really bashed the shit out of out of this article uh, in the shoulder write up I did. Uh, but like during the time, it was totally normal to run randomized controlled trials during this time period. That wasn't abnormal, but they didn't do it. And he does a study and he gets quote unquote, like somewhat successful outcomes on like 40 people or so. And that's it. We're off to the races. Subacromial decompression becomes the mainstay treatment for what we are classifying as impingement-based syndrome. And it took 40 years before we did randomized controlled trials, well-conducted ones. And in 2017 and in 2018, we had two come out. And both of them concluded that doing sham arthroscopy was no better than actually going in and decompressing the joint. Meaning if I wheeled up, uh, half the cohort into the surgical room and I went in and I did a clavicular resection and I decompressed the joints and whatever else that uh, I could will another person in and just make an incision but not do anything to the shoulder, 
And we have up to like two year outcomes, exactly the same, same pain resolution, same functioning. And so now we're realizing like, oh, maybe it doesn't have a lot to do with what's happening at the joint level. And maybe it has a lot more to do with other factors outside of just what we're seeing on imaging. But we're trying to undo 40 years of thinking at this point. I was going to say, yeah, that line of thinking that Greg and I were going down is, you know, we didn't just make it up. I mean, it's it's heavily entrenched. You know, right. if you if you open a kind of introductory level textbooks that pertain to athletic training or injury management, I mean, you see this stuff right there in black and white, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like when we do go outside of like our specific areas of expertise on this podcast talking about stuff, it's generally because or or at least in my case, it's because like I'm saying something that at least I I think or assume is very well supported because, yeah, as far as like the acromion goes, like I learned that in a class in college, which I assumed wasn't just completely full of shit, <laughs> which yeah, which now I realize yeah. may have been an incorrect assumption. I taught that in a college classroom. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm part of the problem. It, well, you guys aren't alone. Like this is when we were talking about titles earlier, this is pervasive throughout all of health, uh, healthcare. Like the social learning aspect about what is pain is massive. And I often joke when I talk about this is, I wish I had the um, the neuralizer from Men in Black, where I could just like flash and be like, "All right, look, dude, this is that is actually what pain is." Like, it, forget all this other shit and let's talk about what it is, uh, because we keep approaching a very complex problem from a very reductionist standpoint. And now we're getting data, and this isn't just the shoulder. I wrote a piece on the meniscus where meniscectomies are going the same exact way, where we're having randomized controlled trials coming out saying. You could pretend to do the surgery and get the same exact outcomes of actually doing the surgery. And so we're getting to this weird point where we're like, all right, all of our thinking on the topic of pain, uh, at least the majority of it, has probably been incorrect. Now, what should we be doing? And so it's this weird transition of how do we replace a belief system we're realizing is false, but doing it in a timely manner where we give people pragmatic application for practice. So yeah, I I'm I'm glad you brought up uh, sham arthroscopy because I think that was I think one of the first things that made me realize that that my understanding of pain was too simplistic and probably wrong is uh, like stumbling upon a Facebook discussion that I believe like Jonathan Fass and Lars Ave Marie were in like yeah. way back in the day and. They shared a study looking at at the meniscus, like like you brought up, um, where people who had a sham surgery had like similar or like the same outcomes as people who did actually have uh, meniscus surgery, which like one blew me away because like prior to that, I thought that like, oh, a meniscus injury is like a pretty serious injury that you probably need surgery for. And then two, I knew that the placebo effect was a thing, but like. I kind of thought that placebos that you were allowed to give in research were like pills or like maybe a fake injection. I didn't realize right. you could just do a fake surgery on people. Right. Like that's <laughs> that, that that stuck in my head mostly because of just like the premise of the experimental setup was was wild to me. It's impressive. Yeah, it's impressive because some of those, if you read through it, the surgeon doesn't even know what they're doing until they're in it. And then the patient's mm-hmm. already like, 
anesthetized and they get an envelope and they're like, they were probably like, oh, okay, I'm actually doing the surgery on you. So it's just amazing, like the steps that some of those protocols took to actually to look at this stuff. One of the things you mentioned was that um, w- one of the challenges now with our our new understanding of pain is being able to apply that to, to practice. And I think that probably means one thing for uh, PTs or chiropractors, like people in your position versus people who are coaches or maybe they don't coach anything, but like, you know, they're an athlete they they will occasionally deal with pain. Um, and, and those are the majority of the people listening to this podcast, like either coaches yeah. or athletes, not that many PTs or, uh, or chiros. So for, for the listeners, like assuming you're talking primarily to, you know, lifters or coaches, um, how, how can we apply, this information and and actually make it uh, relevant to like either our own training or how we go about uh, talking about these issues with with training clients or, you know, you see what I'm getting at. Yeah. I mean, and this is something like we all try to figure out on a regular basis is I because my thing is we could easily make this you know way up in the clouds type discussion, but we need pragmatic application for this stuff. Like we're dealing with humans and I don't need to have, nor does time typically allocate, you know, three hour discussion on the meaning of pain with someone. And most of the time, a lot of people either may not even care or they just want to figure out what do I have to do to get through this or deal with it. So if we talk about it before someone experiences pain from an educational standpoint, I think that's a great place to begin with people just getting that first point down that pain doesn't equal bad, doesn't equal tissue damage in all situations. And regardless of whether you've had something acutely occur, the first rule of, of this entire process is don't panic. Because regardless of what's happening at the tissue level, your emotional status is directly going to influence the severity and intensity of your symptoms. And a lot of times what you'll see um, with this stuff is people can catastrophize a situation so they can kind of unnecessarily worry themselves, they can magnify it, and then they can feel helpless in it, which is an unfortunate part of pain is it removes your autonomy. It makes you feel like you're not in control of the situation. And so that's kind of where we typically began is like educating as, as well as we can, meeting them where they're at about what they think pain is, and then trying to reframe it. And then from a training standpoint, realizing like just because you do experience symptoms in training, that doesn't mean anything immediately needs to be changed or altered or you have to rush off to a healthcare professional or anything like that. Now, this is broad generalization. There's, it's going to be difficult to give concrete guidelines for all situations. But usually what I tell, tell athletes that I work with, if they experience pain while training, it's just to say, you know, hey, let's try another set, maybe even at that same weight and see how you respond to it. Maybe it was nothing to worry about and it goes away. And then we just continue on with life. Now, if you load it up with the same weight and the same set and the same reps, and it feels worse, probably need to make an alteration. And this is where we come in and really like uh, rate of perceived exertion or reps in reserve, because we can say easy things like, hey, just drop that RPE down by a point. Um, and that gives you some control over the situation, which instantly makes you feel like you have some autonomy. And it kind of minimizes that, that fear and panic of what do these symptoms mean. And so we talk about this from uh, kind of a a couple step process. The first is uh, educating. The second would be load management and however we can accomplish that. And then the third would be if we've managed load appropriately, like we've adjusted RPE, we've adjusted 
volume and frequency and symptoms still aren't improving, then the next step could be that we alter exercise selection. So maybe we just take that exercise out for a little bit of time and then reintroduce it. And then the last would be finally, if we're you know, still not getting resolution with that stuff, then probably need to have a little more involved discussion about what's going on and maybe a consultation. But those are general guidelines we give athletes that are dealing with symptoms to how to work through it and do so in a controlled manner where they're not panicking and they feel like they have some self-efficacy with the process. I really like that. And uh, I've, I've kind of been working myself through that, um, not with a client, but with with me. Uh, I've been having a tremendous amount of hip pain. And, you know, I, I tried to go the the traditional route of like, you know, we'll get some imaging done and, you know, kind of did the whole clinical run around with all the different uh, specialists and whatnot. And I realized, you know, I, I kind of want to manage this more like the way you just described, messed around with how I loaded it, uh, the types of exercises I was doing. And it's not perfect yet, but it's still at a at a really manageable spot. You know, I, there's certain exercises I know if I do them, it's going to cause me pain. I know if I stay away from them, I'm probably not going to have pain, uh, which is a, a way better place than I used to be. Yeah. Um, but because it is hip, it, it does bring me to the last thing that I really wanted to get your feedback on. Um, I know we talked a little bit about uh, shoulder morphology as it pertains to pain and injury. Um, Greg and I on a previous podcast also had a question about squat depth in, yeah. in which we talked a little bit about um, hip morphology. So um, do you have anything to share as it pertains to the, the morphology of hip and how it affects uh the way that we squat and train. Yeah. And, and so I think there's a couple of things we could talk about with this. The first would be, um, it's not, it's not a good line of thinking to think that movement should be avoided for anyone. Uh, cause what this can do is kind of feed into kinesiophobia, which is going to be fear avoidance of movement. And that's, that's not a good place to be. And that's actually one of the major correlates we see with persistent pain-based symptoms is someone thinks pain equals bad equals harm equals avoid don't do something, which then removes their autonomy. It can actually, for an athlete, sacrifice their identity, which makes them feel a lot worse. And then it feeds into this, this model called fear avoidance behavior model, which means kind of what you were saying with, with your hip is, I know if I go do this movement, I'm going to get symptoms. So we create this self-fulfilling prophecy based off of prior experiences, and that can perpetuate avoidance. So one of the first things clinically we do is get you doing the things you don't want to do, but in a less threatening manner. And it turns out since pain doesn't correlate well to tissue damage for a lot of scenarios, that means if you are experiencing symptoms, it gives you a chance to challenge that threat and overcome it. And that overcoming it part is a win under your belt, which gives you confidence in your ability to do something, which helps reframe what is pain and how best to respond to it. As it relates to joint morphology, we don't have any evidence that you shouldn't do something because of the way a joint looks. And it's also highly unlikely we would ever advocate for preemptive screening for this kind of stuff. Like it just wouldn't make sense. Uh, an easy example of this would be tendinopathies. We know you can have a degenerated tendon and have no symptoms whatsoever. And the risk for future rupture in say like the Achilles is extremely low, like three to 4%, not enough for us to go around scanning people. So that's, that's something that isn't likely to happen and would take substantial evidence to change that. Now, we've talked a little bit about how perception or kind of anticipated pain responses might play into some of these factors. Yeah. Now I know for me personally, I don't want to make this like a <laughs> show about me, no, no, you're fine. but 
my hip pain tends to wake me at night. Yeah. So like at a time where, I mean, I, I don't understand uh, pain or the brain nearly as well as you, but I would think that that's a time when I'd be not particularly likely to kind of think a pain into existence. Am I off on that? No. And like, it, it'll be the type of thing where I wake up with very intense pain that yeah. uh, maybe once or twice I might have shouted. In the oh, of the night. I, I totally get it. Uh, and so here's a couple of things on this. Um, one, like people typically take away from these conversations, like, oh, it's all in my head. And I'm like, no, it's all of you. You are your mind, you are your body, and it takes both to have a pain experience. In fact, it really takes a third component, which is your environment, because it's context related. Oftentimes reporting, like when I go to squats, when I notice my symptoms. And so like in your situation, it's it's, it's almost as if the biopsychosocial model involves bio, psycho and social factors. <laughs> yes, it's crazy how that works out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it is nuanced. And uh, with all of that in mind, like in regards to your situation, what I usually tell people is, here's the thing, once you become sensitized, which just means you're symptomatic in an area, that does two things typically, especially as symptoms persist. Um, and we don't have to get into this, but it can be called like central and peripheral sensitization type stuff. But you have a tissue tolerance level for what an area is willing to undergo without this kind of feeding into symptomatic development. And you have a threshold for activation to the area. When symptoms tend to persist, the threshold is lowered and your tolerance is lowered. So it's this kind of double whammy where it doesn't take a lot to set you off and you can't tolerate a lot to the area. And so once we're into the sensitized state, people do report like I was just asleep in bed and maybe you rolled over onto it or whatever. And I got extreme symptoms out of it. And there's a couple of talking points there being like, yes, that sucks. And I get that. But to set expectations, that is part of the process and it's nothing to get panic about or worried about the meaning of the symptoms. And the good news is this is going to get better. And as we work through this process, those symptoms are going to regress and you're going to notice them less and less. And the good news is you're going to start doing the things that you want to be able to do that you feel like you can't, which is going to further help with bringing up your threshold and your tolerance levels. But I talk about that from you, Eric, as an individual, not your hips, tissue level and tolerance level and threshold level. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and so then this uh, sensitization is happening at like the the neurobiology level, it, basically. It can. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just trying to like work through that thought process. But the biggest thing as well from a clinical standpoint is we need to be empathetic. And so like empathy would mean like I'm not giving you a label that's stigmatizing you. So I could scan your hip and be like, yeah, you have femoral acetabular impingement. It's a cam. Um, this is what's going on. This is what we're going to do to fix it. And then that fails, which FAI, surgical intervention, has shit outcomes uh, continuously in the research. But because I gave you a biomedical narrative that this is a joint morphological issue or a labral tear issue, I'm hinged to that. And now every subsequent intervention that I utilize to kind of quote unquote fix you has to be involving that joint. But if I approach it from a, a humanistic or holistic, you know, not holistic from the alternative medicine world, holistic as you as a human being and what you're experiencing and talk about like, yes, I understand that you're having hip symptoms, but what matters here is how we deal with this and how we give you back control and how we move you closer towards your goals. And now I've framed this much differently from a hip problem, but to a problem that this person named Eric in front of me is dealing with 
and how best can I help them through this process? That different approach is massive in the clinical world. Awesome. I mean, yeah, if that means I don't have to get hip surgery, then that's a very suitable answer to me. <laughs> how do I deal with that? Yeah. So it's, it, it gets tricky because then the question is, um, like the, the big thing meniscus surgery research is going through is like, okay, like clinical practice guidelines are now saying we should not be doing meniscectomies, meniscal repairs and adolescence has shit uh, support for it at all. Like that surgery is readily being done in youth athletics and we have almost no evidence to support that approach whatsoever. And so now the question becomes, is there a sub cohort that would benefit from this intervention? And with the meniscus, we're realizing, no, a study actually just came out this year that at this time, it doesn't appear that anyone should be undergoing that surgery. That that pertains to both meniscus removal and repair? Yeah. Yeah. The meniscal repair research is almost none. Very, very little to demonstrate that we should be doing that. Um, and then meniscectomies in complete contradiction to it. And so then the, the, uh, the idea would be that you just continue living with a torn meniscus uh, without any surgical intervention whatsoever. Yeah. And that's the, the difficult part is if I frame the knee, the person presenting to my clinic with knee symptoms as having a meniscus issue, I've given you a problem to fix. And that's really difficult to unring that bell. So sometimes knowing isn't better. Interesting. We've kept you here for an hour at this point. Um, is, is there anything on on these sorts of topics that hasn't come up yet, but that you see a lot of people either discussing or getting wrong that, that you think our listeners should be exposed to the correct information on? I would say we've already touched on a lot of it, the pain definition and it not being well correlated to tissue damage and then how to manage things pragmatically in a training setting for athletes. Um, and then from that, realizing like we don't have evidence to say you can't do something at all. Like the, those narratives aren't true. And I, I, what I typically see in the fitness community um, that just like instantly spikes my BP like 20 points is like, Hey, Oh, you have pain perception. That's really bad. You're going to hurt yourself. And then also the technique discussion, which is extremely prevalent of, well, if you do a movement that way, you know, like snap city, you're going to fuck your shit up. Don't do that. And it turns out we actually have even less evidence for that type of dichotomy approach to movement as good versus bad as well. And then this becomes very tricky for people because they're like, well, what am I even doing as a coach? Like you're here for me to teach you how to do a movement and how to do it appropriately. And you can still teach movement to people. There's nothing wrong with that. But it turns out that movement is arbitrary based on the end goal. And there's a lot of different ways to get to the end goal. And you don't have to confine people to this one way to squat or this one way to deadlift or this one way to do something that we can have movement expression and still get to the outcome. And you can give broad generalizations about how to complete the movement because it's, it's task specific. So we know there may be a biomechanically advantageous way to do it to improve outcomes and to improve performance. But when we try to attach those narratives to, well, this is why you're having pain because your lumbar spine flexed in the bottom of a squat, you had like a quote unquote butt wink, or you did a deadlift with some type of thoracic or lumbar rounding, or you did an overhead press and you have uh, whatever going on, you didn't shrug at the top or whatever. That's why you're getting pain perception. Now we've entered into a very, very different discussion where we have very minimal to no evidence to stand on 
to say that how someone does a movement or what type of joint morphology they have for completing the movement or any of that is related to pain perception. But what turns out is the narratives that we frame that discussion through can reach far into the future. And so we've seen like qualitative analysis on this where we sit down and interview patients who have been given the diagnosis of subacromal impingement. And we say, well, what do you think is going to get you better here? And they say, well, I don't know. My ortho sent me to PT and they're telling me I need to rehab this, but I've got this bone spur that's grinding my supraspinatus tendon down. Like, what the fuck are they going to do at rehab? They can't get rid of a bone. And so, and then on top of that, they think that they shouldn't do particular movements like reach overhead because that's going to further impinge it. And so these narratives, people buy into them and that becomes a part of them. And then it influences their learned behaviors throughout life. And I, I would say that's probably like, as you guys can tell, is one of the number one things that like really gets me going in the fitness community is just making a lot of false claims and false narratives around pain experience as it relates to training. Yeah, I mean, I- intuitively, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I you talked about how there's not one specific way to do any particular type of movement. And like I coach a special Olympics powerlifting team and there's a great deal of morphological diversity oh, yeah. uh, in, in terms of joint structure and all, all sorts of uh, physical capabilities. And so, yeah, I mean, that working with that population is hammered at home that, you know, we've got technical definitions of these exercises and multiple strategies to get there. Right. Exactly. So I, I, I think my biggest follow up question to that would be like, well, maybe it doesn't correlate that well with with pain perception. But as far as uh, so when I see people making claims about um, like technique and, and how that could potentially be deleterious, generally they're they're making more of an injury claim, um, right. which a lot of people then assume is a, a claim about pain, which it very well may not be and probably shouldn't be. But for example, yeah. someone may say, you know, if you deadlift with a bunch of lumbar flexion, you know, that may increase your risk of back injury. Um, is is that and so I I also understand that um, that there's not a ton of evidence for claims like that, but I also wonder if this is kind of in absence of evidence, isn't necessarily an evidence of absence type thing, primarily sure. because like it's, it's hard to ethically study that in humans. Like you can't really run a study where you have one group of people, you know, deadlifting with minimal lumbar flexion and one group of people deadlifting with maximal lumbar flexion and see like, Oh, who, who ruptures the most discs? Like no IRB is yeah. going to sign off on that. So well, like, what 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 do we know about like not just movement variability and pain, but movement variability and injury? Because I think I think those yeah. are the claims that I see made more often. So it's yeah, <laughs> I need more alcohol. Um, so injury is interesting, and I know you've done research on this, and I'm actively doing research on it. We actually just started um, with that. Injury comes down to how do we define it. Um, and so like, I always go back to Tempka 2014, who defines it a lot of different ways, but typically, um, in the way I've defined it in my uh, research study I'm conducting is it's kind of a, a multi-pronged approach. A lot of people think pain perception equals injury. And that would, as you mentioned, would be the first false premise that I would highly suggest we move away from that because you can not do that. And it turns out if you think pain is bad equals tissue damage, 
and you avoid activity, you meet the injury definition because you've, you've self-selected out of activity. And one of the main prongs of defining an injury is decrement in performance. So if we already have a misunderstanding of what is an injury, you now have met an injury definition because you've classified yourself as injury, uh, which is a bit of a mindfuck in and of itself. But <laughs> if you look at it from a tissue damage standpoint, it becomes tricky because now it's a question of, does it matter? And if it does matter, how much of it and when and why does it matter? And it turns out, like, even if we wanted to look at lumbar flexion with, say, uh, deadlifting and stuff or squatting, um, A, it turns out that tends to happen anyways, regardless of how it visually appears to your eye, we're getting flexion of the lumbar spine and, say, the bottom of a squat. Um, and so that doesn't matter. Does it make negative outcomes in the long run, which is the data we don't have? But it would be very hard for me to say it does matter, especially if you're adapting to it over time, because we're living creatures. We're not, you know, a cadaver. Um it matters because in that regard that you are adapting because it turns out that it's not correlated to symptoms. And this is where it gets very interesting because you can have these readily identifiable alterations and you're completely asymptomatic. And that could be at any level of uh, alteration to the lumbar spine. We have no way of saying you're going to have symptoms because of what I've seen on imaging. And that's directly related to how you completed movement. It turns out we are dynamic creatures in a dynamic environment to adapt to a lot of different stressors. And if we go like the allostasis route, it turns out like the more capable you are of adapting, that's the better things are for you. So just just to make this practical, just so I like fully understand your position here. Um, so let's say you have a lifter who... They're a competitive power lifter, so their deadlift max is obviously very important to them. They um, they currently deadlift with a lot of lumbar flexion, like a ton of lumbar flexion. Um, they're they've they've tried lifting with a flatter back. Like there is probably some flexion still going on, but but substantially less. And they've tried that before, and they're way way weaker. Um, w- would you? Would you tell that person like, oh, you're stronger deadlifting with a ton of flexion, um, you know, you're you're currently asymptomatic deadlifting that way. That's perfectly fine. Have at it. Like what what yep. would your approach to that to that athlete be? Let me blow up the Internet. I would not alter anything with them. All right. If they would if they've adapted, and if this is a competitive powerlifter, odds are their training history has a couple of years under it, hopefully, um, unless they're just a freak of nature and just destroyed shit, you know, year one in, they've probably adapted to those positions. And so it's going to be very difficult when we when we talk about, it, especially barbell medicine, my kind of qualifiers for movement are, can you subjectively and comfortably find a position that objectively allows you to accomplish the task? And so for the deadlift, subjectively and comfortably find a position that lets you lift the greatest load. Now, are there some performance cues that we can give that meet the criteria of objectively lifting the greatest load? Probably, but that's going to be individualistic to you. And so if you've been training that way, you're adapting to that way. And I don't have any evidence to come in and say um, that this is going to be a net negative for you, prognostically speaking, in the future. So there's no need for me to alter that. And this even gets really, really bad if we come in and say shit like, well, your lumbar spine's flexing, you're going to have pain down the road. I'm setting up a negative expectation. I've no SIBO'd you, right? And that's what we really want to watch out from doing. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, 
Okay, so I th- I think that pretty much covers everything we wanted to ask. Um, Ooh, get- uh, one last Ooh, thing. Scratch Uh-oh. that, Fred. <laughs> Christ. There's two hosts. Um, now, we've talked about some things that you wanted to um, kind of expand on, things we've said in previous podcasts. Now, in a previous podcast, we talked a little bit about applied kinesiology, kind of trying to make sure you leverage the energy from minerals effectively when it comes to strength performance. Did we at least get the minerals right? Uh, I don't recall that. Uh, (laughs) The good news is there is no right. You can do whatever the fuck you want with your minerals, Eric. Um, (laughs) But I want to get all the energy from it. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't know. (laughs) I highly cool. doubt well, there are any randomized control trials of that. Yeah, so our we've got our content pretty much scheduled out, but for your site, if you wanted to maybe put together a guide of which minerals to use for which circumstances, I know a yeah. lot of our readers would really uh, appreciate that. I, I feel like I should do this because I think Goop would probably contact me and be like, hey, would you like to come work with us? And I'll just sacrifice all morals and ethics and take that money. But <laughs> the- Yeah, you could retire in a year, man. Right, right. Yeah, applied kinesiology is interesting, dude. I first learned about it in Cairo school, and I remember listening to this and just being like, what the fuck? Um, But people talk about doing manual muscle testing in office, and we do manual muscle testing for uh, if I'm worried about some, let's say, lumbar radiculopathy, where you're having, you know, loss of reflexes, you're reporting motor weakness to me, and I want to do a quick in-clinic test. Is it the best? Are there other things? That may be able to be done better with, say, like a dynamometer for sure. But manual muscle tests probably aren't going away. And so that's normal things that we do to see, is there a neuromuscular issue issue here in clinical practice? Applied kinesiology does those manual muscle tests, but then draws just batshit crazy conclusions from them. Like you have a rotated kidney or you have high LDL and we need to do this to fix it. And I've sat through some of those lectures and... I already am just like this. I'm mind blown. Like I can't even articulate words for for how to take away what I've heard from those lectures. So so neuromuscular deficits that are inexplicably linked to the rotation of a kidney. Right. But I can prime you to fail a manual muscle test. Right. So like it's interesting. There's no there's really no way for me to replicate the amount of force I'm putting into you uh, with any like type of consistency or assuredness to say, you know, and then if I repeat it, this gets interesting because then you can resist it. There's, you remember, so when I was growing up, um, I used to go to the mall a lot and there were these booths in the mall with like energy bracelets. And they were like, if you put this bracelet on, you're going to be stronger and have more balance and, you know, stand on one foot. Yeah. You guys remember Yeah. And the necklaces too. Yeah. That's kind of what I think of it. It, It's, this is a whole nother podcast, but um, clinical practice is a bit of a magic show and it kind of ethically comes down to the theatrics that are involved with it and someone being in a position of power and authority guiding someone else through some problems they're having in life and how much you want to feed into these kind of contextual mechanisms and placebo effect. So I, if I'm really good, I can get you to believe things about yourself and your experience um, fairly easily, right? And this is where it gets into the magic show. And that tends to be what applied kinesiology seems to be doing is I get you to buy into these various ideas and thought processes through my magic tricks. 
Um, and then we give you some type of narrative that we need to now fix. Now, the parallel to this is, and ethically, do we think applied kinesiology is saying better or worse than me telling you your knee symptoms are solely due to a torn meniscus and I need to surgically intervene on that? Wow, that's a hot take. Yeah. Very hot take. The way that we like to end the podcast with all of our guests is since, you know, th- th- this is a, a relatively sciencey place. Um, one of the things we like to ask our guests is what is something that either there's like no evidence for or maybe even that there's evidence against that maybe you apply to your own training or like your client's training that like you you just believe um is is there oh. anything like that and and you, you know and and just so it doesn't affect your bottom line here let's not talk about like your clinical practice let's talk yeah. about your own yeah. training is sure. is there something that that you like to do in your own training and programming that there's no evidence for but like by god you think it just works um that's a good question I don't know that I have an answer to that. <laughs> um, I mean, so the, the quick, easy things that come to mind, I and you guys may know this better than me, I put on a lever belt when I squat a certain percentage. I put on knee sleeves when I squat a percentage that's higher. Uh, to me, anecdotally, those things subjectively feel good, and I feel like it gives me some ability. I have a feeling someone like Benedetti, who studies placebos a lot and has written on placebos in sport, would be like, yeah, dude, sorry, that's a placebo. Um, I'm not aware of studies on that. Have you guys seen any? Um, I haven't seen much on knee sleeves. As far as belts go, they do like actually change some neuromuscular stuff. Um, One of the things, and now that I think about it, it could just be a matter of the subjects being used to squatting in belts. But one of the things you see is that even even with the same absolute load, when people squat with a belt rather than beltless, you see like slight increases in quad and hamstrings EMG. Um, so it does seem like for some people, like belts do actually have like a mechanistic effect of helping people potentially like activate their, their lower body musculature a little bit better. But as far as the knee sleeves go, I haven't seen any research on that. Yeah. So that would be probably what I would go with. Um, I don't do a whole lot, man. Like if squats programmed, I walk in and put the bar on the rack and start squatting. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I like caffeine a lot, but I feel like that has decent support. Um, Maybe not. You guys could probably tell me that. Well, you're in luck. We just published, uh, I guess, yesterday, a three billion word article on everything you'd ever want to know about caffeine. It sounds like my kind of article. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think I have a lot that I do. But, you know, if I wanted to be really uh, kind of deep on this, I guess, or philosophical, we all have a series of beliefs about the world. And it just comes down to what level of evidence do you need to substantiate that belief? So I'm sure there are many things that I currently do that will future will be proven incorrect. It makes sense. All right, man. Well, uh, I I think that's all we have. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. And now this is the beautiful time of the podcast where you can shill for as much as you want. Um, tell our audience where they can find you. Do you have any products you'd like to plug, etc.? The floor is yours. Oh, cool. 
uh, something I'm really shitty at. <laughs> you can find me at, uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram, Michael underscore Barbell Medicine. Um, we run a completely free pain and rehab sub forum on barbellmedicine.com. You just click on pain and rehab. If you have a question in there, there's three of us now, well, four of us that actually moderate that. Derek Miles, Michael Amato, uh, Austin Baraki, and myself. And we try to give you guidance that's com- completely free, not within reason. If we think it needs a consult, we'll tell you. Um, we do remote uh, pain and rehab consults. We work with people all over the world. In essence, we're just trying to return them to the activities that they have a desire to do. And we guide that path a little bit. Um, we do completely free blogging, sim- similar to you guys on Barbell Medicine's website, where I've probably written way more words than anyone ever cares about to talk about topics like what is mobility and is it that bullshit we hear talked about and being a supple tiger or whatever. Um, so you can kind of go there and hear us just rant and rave about that stuff. Um, I've done for products, I created some rehab templates for the knee and as well for the low back. And then I just got done recording this past week, a seven module low back pain clinician clinician course in essence, where uh, I spent about six months looking at the totality of research evidence on what we should be doing in clinical practice for someone presenting with low back pain, and then how how we should be treating them to get them back to the life they want to do. That'll hopefully be out very, very soon. uh, And that'll be continuing ed for clinicians. Very nice. Well, thank you for coming on. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's a wrap. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.